to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Let's go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports 2021. What's happening? Hallelujah. We are here. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa, shalom. What is going on? What is happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Man, what's going on? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. I hope everybody is doing fantastic. I hope everybody is celebrating the start of 2021. And I'm hoping that the resolutions, I'm hoping that the outlook, I'm hoping that the goals and responsibilities toward 2021 is to make you, is to make me, is to make the person next to you, to make your loved one, to make your friends, your family, your children, the folks all around you, much better people as we move forward, as we try to turn what was a disastrous for most, for some, for a lot, 2020 into a more prosperous, both financially, physically, mentally, a better 2021. Speaking about trying to be better 2021 physically, going to be starting my body pump class on uh, tomorrow. Recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, probably will be published later on tonight, but tomorrow, 10 a.m., getting back once again to Les Mills body pump, starting with the lunges and starting with the squats and starting with the bench presses and working on the traps and the bides and the trides and the glutes and the quads and the pecs and all those good things to uh, try to lose some of this uh, over-the-vacation weight that I gained. God damn, do I gain some weight quickly when I look at myself in the mirror and I just go, woo! Motherfucker, put your shirt back on before you start breaking mirrors again. Good Lord have mercy. If I walked out of the house with my shirt on, good Lord have mercy. I mean, animal control would have to be called to shoot my buffalo fat ass. So, uh, yeah, I am pumped to go ahead and once again start climbing up the hill toward uh, looking better. But unlike other times, this is a situation where, you know what, man, I'm looking to uh, lose weight, get in shape, and uh, put a little shape in my body in the positive just for... The longevity in terms of feeling better, looking better, doing things that I couldn't do and all that good stuff. I'm not interested in a six-pack ab. I'm not interested in bulging biceps and, uh, you know, big-ass big ass chest and me walking around the streets with my shirt off and in Daisy Duke shorts and having the uh, 30-year-olds or the 25-year-old females drool and swoon and all that kind of nonsense. Nah, man, I'm... I'm past that stuff. Now it's all about maintaining. Now it's all about seeing what I can do to put some, uh, you know, physical, um, some physical stuff in the bank. So when I turn 60 and when I turn 70, when I turn 80, Lord willing, if I'm allowed to live that long, that, uh, you know, I can go ahead and still do the things that I want to do in terms of just physical walking, running, lifting, opening up a jar by myself, all those good things, fending off arthritis and all of those things. So, yeah, man, 2021, that's one of my goals, once again, to get back and to uh, start working out again. We're doing great before the last couple of weeks of the new year, but I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start once it's over. So, I mean, once the uh, new year begins. 
and it is here. So that's exactly what I'm doing. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us today on the podcast. I'm mainly going to be speaking about what's happening in the NFL. I'm going to be saving my thoughts and feelings about the NBA, which I'm watching right now as I'm recording this Memphis in L.A. The game has just started over there in Otis Redding Stack's studio land. But uh, I'm uh, going to be discussing what's happening in the NBA on my next podcast, which is going to be coming hopefully in the next 48 to 72 hours. Also going to be speaking on that podcast about the college football playoffs. Man, could you imagine? I mean, the way Ohio State, let's just go ahead and I'm going to give my thoughts and opinions about this based on Dabo Sweeney rankings. Could you imagine the way that Ohio State beat down Clemson on Saturday could you imagine if Coastal Carolina would have played Clemson? Because according to Dabo, Coastal Carolina is ranked higher than Ohio State. So if the number 11 ranked Ohio State Buckeyes in Dabo's rankings could put that type of beat down on the number two ranked Clemson Tigers, imagine what Coastal Carolina could have done to them. So, wow. So Alabama and Ohio State are going to be playing for the national championship in a bastardized season. So my next podcast, I'll be getting into that and also of course i'm going to be discussing my georgetown hoyas they play tomorrow against butler they once again snatched victory from the jaws of defeat with um play that was uh you know very 2020 2021 georgetownish missed shots bad rebounds choking players not coming through leadership not getting it done so you know, just your typical Georgetown basketball team for this season. They fall to three and six, one and four, I believe, in the Big East. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens against Butler. Now, if there's going to be any team that Georgetown can beat, it's going to be Butler. But um, we'll see. When you're as bad as Georgetown, then you never know. But as I mentioned before, with the recruiting class we got coming in, led by Aminu Muhammad, and you top that off for, you know, right behind them comes guys like Ryan Matamo and. and uh, and uh, Jordan Riley and, and Tyler Beard and Jenkins Billingsley. You know, I don't give a damn if we go 3-23 and 23 this year. Play the young guys. Everybody's talking about, I can't believe Ewing with the goddamn uh, lineup that they had where they had Jabari Sibley and TJ Berger on the on the floor. Good! <laughs> we lost the lead against, that's when the lead started to dissipate. I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to see Jabari Sibley and TJ Berger not get minutes at the expense of winning. I don't want, I don't want to see that. I'm not interested in having Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair and Chudier Bile and Jalen Harris if he ever comes back. I don't want to see those guys playing 35 to 40 minutes a game so we can finish with eight or nine wins in a 25 game schedule. No, I don't care. Play Berger, play Dante Harris, play Jabari Sibley, play those guys, play them, play them, play them. Shit, play Timothy Ego FA. I don't give a damn. It's not about winning or losing. I just want to see throughout the season us improving. And when I say us improving, and I guess when I say the word us and improving, I meant to say the freshmen. The guys who are going to be the foundation for next year's team. Everybody's talking about Georgetown. Ooh, this recruiting class is going to save everything. And now for next season, Georgetown's expectations should be to make the tournament. Well, how the hell are you going to make the tournament if you're going to be playing Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair 35 to 40 minutes a game and having them take all the important shots and having them play all the important minutes? Fuck no. Hell no. Heck no. Heck no. Treat this season like the JV season in terms of sacrificing wins for the development of these players. And I know the NBA, Patrick Ewing's background, not only in playing but coaching, says that you go with the guys that you trust. 
and you go with the guys that can win you basketball game. Coach, you ain't playing for your job this season. It's okay if you're going to only win five or six games. But if I see some type of improvement from Sibley, which small steps I have, if we can go ahead and eliminate some of the turnovers from Dante Harris and improve his decision-making, which will only come with game time, that's a positive. I'm going to see T.J. Berger get on the court and get his feet wet and get himself in situations where he's going to be in next season. Same thing with um, T- Timothy Ego F.A. If it means putting Malcolm Wilson in there, sure, do that also. But damn, man, everybody's up there screaming and yelling about Patrick Ewing with the lineup changes or with the with the lineups. I mean, I wouldn't give a damn if he wanted to play Jabari Sibley and T.J. Berger until they foul out, whether that's 40 minutes or 5 minutes. Put in Kobe Clark. I don't give a damn. If we lose by 15 to 20, who cares? We're not making the tournament. I mean, we're not making any tournament. We're not making the NCAA tournament. We're not na- making the NIT tournament. We're not sniff- sniffing the CBI basketball tournament. We're not making any type of tournaments. We're not making the Kenner League tournaments. We're not making the high school tournament down here in the street, down at Centennial High School. We're not making any tournaments. There's no tournaments out there that Georgetown's good enough to participate in. So this season is all about building that foundation. So when the next year recruits come in, they can have the opportunity or they can have the responsibility not to be saving the program because as much as I like Tyler Beard as much as I like Jordan Riley as much as I like Ryan Matambo as much as I like Jagan Billingsley and as much as I like Aminu Muhammad we're not talking about the recruiting class of a Cam Reddish uh, Zion Williamson or an R.J. Barrett we're not talking about three or four guys who are going to be lottery picks. We're not talking about a guy who's going to be transcending basketball like Anthony Davis when he went to Kentucky, like Zion Williamson when he went to Duke. We're not talking about Georgetown bringing in all those recruits. So if you want Georgetown to even think, to even have a shot or a prayer of sneaking in to the NCAA tournament next season, it's not going to be because of Ryan Matambo. It's not going to be because of the recruits that we got coming in. It's going to be of the work that's being done with the young guys this season. So this nonsense about hey, Patrick Ewing's not playing the right. Get, get the hell out of here. Shooters Wahab, Dante Harris, those guys are are our foundation for next year. If we're going to do anything, those two along with um, Mohammed are going to be the reasons why we're going to be doing something. It's not going to be because of Javon Blair, Chudier Bile, who fucking sucks beyond recognition, and um, Jamarco Pickett. So that's my rant about Georgetown. I'll be speaking about more concerning that team after they lose tomorrow against Butler. But, uh, you know, here's hoping for the best. But so that's kind of like what I'm going to be talking about on my next podcast, taking a look at the NBA. I saw my Wizards play the... um, <laughs> saw them play the Brooklyn Nets the other night. Uh, Kevin Durant's going to be missing the next, I guess, three, four games because of, uh, I don't know if he was hanging around someone with COVID, but COVID-related issues. Good God almighty, the Wizards play no defense. Zero. <laughs> I mean, that team, I was watching the Nets and the Wizards. I saw them on League Pass. When the season first started, I saw their back-to-back with Orlando, and I saw them play against Philadelphia to open the season. Good God, that team plays no defense, but... Bradley Beal is not a defender. Russell Westbrook is not a defender. Davis Bertans is not a defender. Uh, Denny Avia, the rookie from Israel, he's not a defender. Thomas, Thomas Bryant is an okay rim protector, but he's undersized. I mean, there's nobody. Ish Smith is not a, a defender. There's nobody on the Witchers team that can defend anybody. 
But what was even more atrocious was the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, Brooklyn's supposed to have aspirations of uh, doing some things in the Eastern Conference, which still is kind of muddled up when you're talking about who's the best team. I don't know if it's Milwaukee. I don't know if it's Boston. I don't know if it's Miami. I don't know if it's Toronto is off to a one in five record. Pascal Siaskam hasn't been getting the job done. Cal Lowry's talking about we're not playing with any type of confidence or swag. That's because you don't have such guys as uh, Marcus Saul and Serge Ibaka, Kawhi Leonard before that, who is no longer with the team. And, by the way, guys who are, I guess, situated normally in Toronto are trying to get used to their new surroundings playing in Tampa in front of nobody. So that's an adjustment that Nick Nurse and the players are going to have to make. So it's kind of understandable the reason why the Raptors would start off as slowly as they are. But, you know, in the Eastern Conference, who knows? I mean, the Milwaukee, Drew Holiday, I mean, they're starting off kind of... Eh, I mean, how much better are they than last season? I think they're better, but how much better? I mean, uh, Boston? Or, I, what 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 uh, weightlifting class did Jason Tatum take in the short amount of, uh, amount of time? Man, that guy is looking buff. Uh, Jalen Brown starting off and playing great. Bradley Beal for the Wizards looked like he's lost no weight. Russell Westbrook looked like he's lost a step. That's not the same explosiveness as I saw him when he was even with the Houston Rockets last season. Uh, the, the East is going to be really, really, really interesting. And then you throw into the fact that, you know what, one of these teams, Brian Windhorst on this podcast made this point, and I, uh, I agree with him 100%. When, without a clear-cut favorite in the East, one of these teams, not named the Milwaukee Bucks, I'm guessing the Philadelphia 76ers are going to see that opportunity to uh, win the East. They're going to go ahead and see what they can do to get themselves James Harden, who is scoring-wise and done pretty good. Still doesn't look like he's in shape. Don't know, don't know when he's going to be in shape. But I I think that the Philadelphia 76ers, ultimately, who are going to make that move. Daryl Morey knows him from his time in Houston. I think that uh, he's going to have the confidence in Doc Rivers, who's dealt with superstars before, dealt with uh, unique personalities before. If you're speaking about Kawhi and Paul George and Rajon Rondo and Chris Paul. So as far as, you know, unique individuals, Doc has uh, dealt with all of them. Doc's a pretty unique individual himself, but I think he has the strength and the character being a black America's head coach that he feels that he can get the best out of Harden. You have a team in Philadelphia, which is playing pretty well, I guess, but still the symmetry between Simmons and Embiid is not rock solid. I don't know if this situation between, I don't know if the, the the chemistry between those two guys, I don't think they hate each other. I don't think it's a situation where those guys, I don't, it's just something seems to be, they could be doing better, but I don't ever see them doing better as a tandem. Maybe it's because of their strengths and weaknesses kind of being the same in terms of their offense is concerned. Mainly, none of those guys can shoot with Embiid shooting threes. You don't want him to do that, but... Ben Simmons, while he's putting up some threes, he's never going to be a three-point shooter. I, I don't know. I, I think when everything is all said and done and you're going to see the 76ers in a position, you might see the Celtics. Danny Ainge is never shy about the possibility of a swinging big. I think one of those teams that are contenders are going to go ahead and say, you know what, let's roll the dice and uh, let's see what we can do about bringing in James Harden and I don't know what point the Rockets are going to get to to where, you know, for instance, they were in discussions with the, they were in discussions with the Brooklyn Nets 
with the Harden trade. They're like, well, we'll go ahead and we either want Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. Come on, man. I mean, uh, are you serious? I mean, you know that's a no-go. Why, why are you bullshitting with us, me and Mr. Stone? Why are you, bullsh- why, why are you bullshitting with some nonsense like that? You, you know that's not going to happen. Well, that's a, no, that's a non-starter. Well, that's okay. Mike D'Antoni, I don't think, is too unhappy about that to begin with. So we'll see what happens moving forward as the season moves on. So all of that stuff will be discussed in my next podcast, just a preview. But I want to get to this week and what I'm going to be harping on, what I'm going to be chirping on, what I'm going to be discussing on. NFL Weekend 17, games of important, the Cleveland Browns. <sighs> they are in the playoffs. They are finally in the playoffs. Celebrate good time for Cleveland fans. Come on. They ended the NFL's longest playoff drought with a 24-22 victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Browns are now 11-5. They're winning a season since 1994 when, guess what? Uh, Mel Belichick led the franchise to its last postseason victory. First time in 17 seasons that Cleveland made it, had made the playoffs. Nick Chubb in the game against Pittsburgh ran for 105, excuse me, 108 yards in a touchdown. Baker Mayfield completed 17 of 27 passes for 196 yards in the touchdowns. Also rushed for a season high 44 yards, including the game clinching first down under a minute to go in the fourth quarter. It, the win against the Steelers was just their 12th victory in the, uh, was just their second victory in the last 12 meetings against Pittsburgh and only the eight versus the Steelers since the franchise returned to Cleveland back in 1999 the Brown won the regular season finale for the first time since 2009 all of those things are awesome all of those things are spectacular fantastic and of course it wouldn't be Cleveland it wouldn't be the Browns if there's just a little bit of rain falling into the paradise, which is the Browns finally making the playoffs, which is Kevin Stefanski will not be available to coach their playoff game because of COVID-19 and a couple of other coaches. Despite all that, I still think Cleveland has a really good chance to uh, win this game. I'm not I'm not feeling Pittsburgh. I'm not digging Pittsburgh. I've got my questions about Pittsburgh, their ability to run the football. They're one in four in their last five games going into the regular season. The, the fact that they played five games and 25 games understood how Mike Tomlin wanted to go ahead and give Ben Roethlisberger, TJ Watt, some other starters some rest. So I, I, I get all that and understand all that. But man, as I mentioned before, when arguing the fact why Pittsburgh should have played those guys that should have tried to win that game against Cleveland this past Sunday was because going into the playoffs, it's all about momentum. And if you take a look at now Cleveland, despite the fact that they won't have their head coach, despite um, everything that's been going down because of that, the fact that the facilities are going to be locked down and preparation for the game is going to have to be uh, truncated and kind of uh, moved around. There's got to be a little thinking outside the box. There's got to be a little twisting and turning in terms of how are we going to get this done to optimize the ability to get ready for the Steeler, Steelers game. Despite all of that, for the Cleveland Browns, winning and starting that momentum and that feeling that, that, that they've got and that determination that they've got, I mean, that's got to be something that's really tangible moving forward. And not just with Cleveland. You take a look at the playoffs. I mean, the Buffalo Bills who I'll be discussing later on in this podcast. Is there anybody hotter than the Buffalo Bills who's won nine out of their last 10 games? If you're the Kansas City defending champions, you have to be somewhat concerned. Now, maybe 
The fact that Kansas City is as talented as they are, they still won their football games. They've won 23 of their last 24 games. I'm not counting what happened on Sunday, their loss to the L.A. Chargers because Patrick Mahomes and a bunch of other starters didn't play in that game. So sometimes I think because Buffalo is a fresh story, it's a new story that we're going to go ahead and we're going to concentrate on them and talk about what they've been doing, which has been very impressive in the fact of what Stefan Diggs and Josh Allen and those guys are doing, that we're going to go ahead and we're going to fo- focus more on them and bring up the narrative that they might be the ones to upend Kansas City's domination over the last couple of seasons. But, you know, behind the reasons for thinking about that is because of the fact that the Kansas City football team had, excuse me, the uh, Buffalo Bills have been playing such red hot football. And the swing it all the way back to the argument I made about wanting to see the Steelers, or if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, wanting to see the Steelers play Ben Roethlisberger and TJ Watt and those guys, if it's not even going to be for an entire game, at, at least a half, is because you want to see Pittsburgh, again, who have lost going into that game three of the last four. And after those four games, they've only, or the five games that they've played, have really only played one good quarter. You want to see them kind of rectify some things and, and, and gain some momentum with a win, with some good play. But Mike Tomlin knows this team a lot better than I do. The Steelers are a veteran squad, a veteran organization. So maybe for a mature team that has won Super Bowl that have had success before, Maybe that's a situation where the quote-unquote momentum of winning a football game going into the playoffs is not as important as getting those players rested. I don't know what the injury situation is concerning Ben Roethlisberger. This is a guy who's 39 years old after all, so we don't know exactly you know, how he's going to be if he had to play this game and such other things as far as the Steelers who didn't play, what their injuries, what their nicks and aches and pains were, so... Tomlin didn't play those guys. He didn't play those guys. But to move it all the way back to Cleveland, yeah, man. Cleveland said, thank you very much. We'll go ahead and we'll take advantage of that uh, opportunity in the game against Pittsburgh. I think, unlike in the game against the Jets, where because of situations beyond their control dealing with COVID, the fact that they didn't have their four wide receivers, the Browns lost an embarrassing game to the New York Jets the week before to put them in this position to play for their playoffs lives. They got back to what they knew, which was controlling their line of scrimmage with their run game. The team ran for 192 total yards against the Steelers on Sunday. Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, they combined for 145 yards on 24 carries. If you do the math, that's six yards per carry. The Browns committed just four penalties for only 19 yards. They didn't turn the ball over. They completed half of their 12 third down attempts. And on defense, they pressured the Steelers' passers, generated four sacks, and held the Steelers to under, well, they they, um, um, held them to a reasonable uh, score with only 22 points. So there you go. It was a good all-around performance. After the game was over, I I thought, I mean, at first I thought, man, this celebration is a little bit over the top here. I mean, did they just win the conference championship or something? Or did they just win a regular season game to get themselves into the playoffs? I thought it was maybe a a level above. You remember you remember Josh McDaniel, his first year as the coach of the Broncos. And remember the disrespectful display of enthusiasm and joy that he had when he was coaching the Broncos and they beat the uh, 
pitch, uh, they beat the Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. I don't know what the fourth or fifth or sixth game of the season. I know they jumped out of the shoot six and zero, and then they collapsed after after that. But one of those games at the Mile High uh, at uh, at Denver. I don't know what Ross. I don't know who it was. A wide receiver bailed them out. I think they won in overtime. But then after the game was over, here's Josh McDaniel running around the running around the field, leaping into the players' arms and doing this all kind of nonsense. And it's like, man, doesn't this guy know that this is only game four or five of the season and there's a long way to go? And to do that, and I understand that was your, you know, the beating the Patriots, the dynasty-led Patriots then, and Bill Belichick was a big deal. But come on, man. I mean, you know, that's, I mean, you know, what are we back in college? What are we back in high school? Are we back in college to where Wisconsin or we go back to where something like a um, uh, Northwestern football team beats uh, second-ranked Ohio State and the fans rush the field? I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous. So that was just a level above, I thought, the enthusiasm of the Cleveland uh, players going nuts after they won that game. They beat a Pittsburgh Steelers team again that, they should have beaten already. I mean, they, the fact that they only won 24-22. Eh, the Steelers team that played five days, or excuse me, five games in 25 days. Y'all are getting all hyped and excited about that. A team, Steelers team that played without its starters, without Roethlisberger, without TJ Watt. Y'all are supposed to be a legit playoff team and you guys are acting like that. You allow backup quarterback, some guy named Mason the Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, to throw for 315 yards on two touchdowns and one interception, 22 or 39 passing. You almost lost a game in a playoff opportunity after leading 24 to 9 in the fourth quarter. You guys are going to be acting like that? And you guys expect to be doing something in the uh, NFL playoffs? Really? 24 to 9 in the fourth quarter, they almost blew that game. Rudolph threw a 28-yard pass to Rookie uh, wideout Chase Claypool, make it 24-16. Then after Cleveland's stall, uh, Cleveland drove uh, drove and stalled their uh, drive in Pittsburgh's territory. You say that 10 times fast, huh? Rudolph threw a uh, two-yard touchdown pass to Juju Smith-Schuster to make it 24-22 with 123 left to go in the game. But the two-point conversion, Rudolph overthrew Claypool, Tight end for the Browns, Stiff and Carlson recovered an onside kick. Mayfield and company were able to drain the rest of the clock, as I mentioned before. A nice little rollout QB uh, run to seal the victory. So, I don't know, man. I mean, up there, Mayfield is blowing kisses, and those guys are jumping around and doing all this kind of stuff. Jump up, jump up, and get down like they're... Uh, like they've uh, absolutely done something, you know. I don't, I don't get that. But I guess you have to learn to walk before you start running, right? In the history of this franchise over the past 17 season, no playoff appearances. That was the longest active streak in the NFL. I guess you could say from let's take first the fans and then the players. Of course, the fans are going to go nuts. I mean, when you haven't made the playoffs in 17 years, or 13 of those 17 seasons, you finished last in the division. And the three other times you finished third out of four teams because Cincinnati stunk out loud, then I guess you can go a little bit of nuts. When you are a Cleveland Browns fan, and we're not talking about, we're talking about one of the most loyal fan bases in the NFL, one of the biggest fan bases in the NFL, right there with the Pittsburgh Steelers, right there with the Dallas Cowboys. But I think the Cleveland Browns fans are more real than the Dallas Cowboy fans, if you know what I mean. A lot less bandwagoners on the Cleveland Browns football team than, shall we say, the Dallas Cowboys football team. So 
Cleveland's right up there in terms of uh, name recognition, the history and everything in those aspects with the Cowboys and with the Green Bay Packers and with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, they're one of the more authentic uh, franchises in the NFL. And when they've been down for that long and the fact that they've never made a Super Bowl appearance, even though the last time they won a championship was in 1964 and they've had their players, they've had their stories, they've had their chances, they've had their Hall of Famers, they've had their quarterbacks, they've had their coaches. There's a gleam, man. There's a gleam. Get the gleam, Marty Schottenheimer nonsense. But I can understand. Finally. Yeah, we beat a Pittsburgh team that was undermanned. Yeah, we almost blew a lead. Yeah, but damn, man. Wendell, if you're my age or I'm your age, you know how pathetic it's been. You know the heartache. You know the the Ernest Biner fumble. We've known the Brian Sype interception against the Oakland Raiders in the, uh, in the playoff game, which we lost 14-12. You knew about all this kind of stuff. You knew about all the heartache. And then again, the ineptitude when the Browns were first uh, rebir- reborn after their franchise moved to Indianapolis. Uh, that was, yeah, ba- not with Baltimore. The Cleveland Browns, they just they just um, disbanded. Excuse me. Wow, what am I speaking about? Art Modell, yes. Everybody's favorite, Art Modell. But yeah, so when the, when the Browns were reborn, I mean, you know how bad it's been for us. You just mentioned the fact that 13 out of the 17 years, we didn't make the playoffs. We finished in goddamn last place. Three times we finished third out of four teams. We've gone through nine head coaches, 11 if you count interims. Only three years removed from suffering an embarrassment of a 16-0 campaign. Remember Hugh Jackson? And then I think the next year, y'all went 1-15. So some nonsense like that. So I can understand first the enthusiasm of the fans. That's understandable. But then I started thinking a little bit more about why are these players going so nuts when they're supposed to be talking about we're not done, we're not satisfied, but yet and still those guys are acting like they're doing. Then I then I remembered, oh yeah, 0-16, 1-15. Yeah, I forgot about that. Baker Mayfield, he did something that uh, 29 other quarterbacks before him couldn't do. Bring Cleveland back to the playoffs. There you go. There you go. We played like a playoff caliber quarterback after having a job in jeopardy. And I'm not talking about having his job in jeopardy a couple of seasons ago. I'm talking about as early as this season. And speaking about more evidence that he's turned a corner to show that, you know what, he is the guy for Cleveland going forward at the quarterback position if they want to continue this prosperity. The leadership and maturity that he showed after his miscues the week before in losing to the uh, then 1-13 New York Jets. Showing more maturity, professionalism, that type of thing. Kevin Stefanski on the way back to Cleveland after the game against the Jets. He wanted to go come back, and you know, on the plane ride back. He wanted to go back and, you know, talk to Mayfield and be like, hey, you know what, hang in there, this, that, and the other. He got back to uh, talk to Mayfield. Mayfield was like, I'm ready to go, man. That's, that's over with. I understand what I have to do. I'm going to get myself ready. That game's over. There's going to be no carryover from the mistakes that I made. That's 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 maturity. That's leadership. That's professionalism. That's someone where it's like, okay, you have the ability. Now, mentally, you're starting to get there also. You're not in the same level, and I don't think you'll ever be a level to where you can be considered an elite quarterback. But as I mentioned before, he's showing, with each game, he's showing more and more that he is a guy that will give you hope that if you can build around him and put the players in, in place, I mean, really good players in place, he's not going to take chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad. He's not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not vintage Tom Brady. But 
if you put enough good players around them and you have a defense that's decent enough to where they're not the Houston Texans, that, yeah, Mayfield could be a guy that can do some really good things at the quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. If Jimmy Garoppolo can be the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers who made the Super Bowl and were very close to winning the Super Bowl, then there should be no reason why Baker Mayfield can't do the same thing as quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. So again, more maturity, professionalism. He he's he's got a he he's got a some his swag, his leadership, his self confidence. That that nonsense he showed, he's always had that, but it's starting to mature. That's nonsense, that swag, leadership, self confidence that he showed in college and the first few years in the league. Yeah, that was made for college kids. That was made for young folks with no responsibilities in their lives. That that was made for frat boys. That was made for, you know, guys going to parties and wanting to be cool and bang chicks and, you know, and, and walk around swinging their dicks and trying to show everybody how big and bad and tough they are. They're, that, that, that swag and leadership and self-confidence that but that the Mayfield was showing his first couple of years in the league, that, 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 that's made for college campuses, for little boys. That's, that's that type of nonsense. Now, now the swag in leadership and self-confidence that he's showing now, that's made for grown men. That's made for adults. That's made for folks who are husbands and fathers and have real responsibilities. That's the type of swag that those type of people are willing to follow and believe in. Having a season like he did last year where, you know, the first season, yeah, he threw 27 touchdowns, but you saw the immaturity. You saw that I don't give a damn. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to say what I'm going to say and nothing will change me. And I'm a big, bad motherfucker. I'm bad, bad Baker Mayfield, the baddest man in the whole damn town. I'm better than old King Kong and meaner than the junkyard dog. Yeah, yeah. Let me dumb zip my pants. Get on the floor, bitch. I mean, that type of nonsense, you know. Going back and forth with Hugh Jackson, going back and forth with Rex Ryan, all that, all that, all that bullshit, you know? Who gives a fuck about that nonsense? Take a look at a pro, Baker. As I was speaking to the Baker back in those days. Take a look at a Neilan Manning. Take a look at a Peyton Manning. Take a look at a Tom Brady. Take a look at a, an Aaron Rodgers. Take a look at those guys. I mean, those guys aren't, you know, those guys don't have to announce to everybody how big and bad and cool they are. You know, they don't have to put on some type of James Dean persona, persona to, for everybody to be like, ooh, he's so cool. Ooh, he's so cool. C-O-O-L. What that spell? He doesn't need to do all that. They don't need to do all that shit. Baker knew very quickly that, that that shit is for little boys. That's college bullshit. He ain't in college no more, son. And, you know, well, he's 22 and all this kind of stuff. First of all, when he came into the league, he was 23 years old. And second of all, if you're going to be putting that responsibility, hey, I'm sorry. You know, age is, is, is thrown out the window. Well, he's allowed to make those mistakes because of his age. No, 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 no. Sorry. Not when you're trying to be the quarterback. Not when you're trying to be the face of a billion-dollar franchise. Doesn't work that way. Does not work that way. It's, it's like the girl who gets herself pregnant when she's 18, has her kid when she's 19, and still wants to go out and party and have fun and do all these things and act like a 20, 21, 22, and 23-year-old. And then the excuse is, well, you know, she's young. She's got to uh, go ahead and have her fun. No. Well, if that's the case, she should have spread her legs open and got herself pregnant. Sorry. You're a, you're a mother now. Sorry. You made that decision. So because you decided to become a mother, sorry, you can't go clubbing every night. Sorry, you can't go ahead and do the things that a normal 20, 21, 22, non-child person is having. Same thing with Baker Mayfield. Well, he's 23, he's 24, young, he's young, he makes mistakes. Well, 
Sorry, he decided that he wants to be a great football player. He wanted to be the guy who wanted to be a employee of a multi-billion dollar organization and be the face of it. And he's the guy that wants to go out there and live at, at Cleveland Brown Stadium and do all those commercials and those progressive commercials. Is it progressive? What's, what, what, Allstate? I don't know. Whatever commercials he's doing. I know he does Hulu. And I, know he, I know he does those funny commercials with his wife, with him living at the stadium. But, but the bottom line is that, you know, sometimes your everyday existence dictates your responsibilities, which dictates your maturity. So, yeah, Baker Mayfield, 23, 24, I'm big, and I'm bad, and I'm cool, I've got swag, and yeah, fuck you, Jackson, I don't give a fuck, fuck Rex Ryan, bullshit, man, fuck, grow the fucking hell up, because you got 30, 32-year-olds, 35-year-olds who are trying to do some things before they end the, uh, before they end their careers and go on to the next stages of their lives, you got coaches, you got employees who need for you to grow the fuck up. Because they need to get paychecks also. So, I mean, that's the responsibility that Baker Mayfield has being the face of the franchise. And I'm glad now that he's learning to uh, become a true leader of the team. And again, we've seen it week after week that makes me say, okay, all right, Baker, there's a guy who I want to follow. There's a guy who I do believe in. There's a guy who I think can get me to where I want to go. If I'm a coach, it's like, okay, there's a guy who's going to keep me employed and going to keep my paycheck and going to keep my son in school and keep us in the area and keep our standard of living where it is. I feel much better. I feel more confident. The glass is half full. So, look, if the, the Browns have faced diversity before. They've been facing, facing it now with the Fansky not being able to coach. But they had to overcome... The, the game against the New York Jets, which they didn't overcome. They didn't overcome. They didn't overcome against the Jets. The top four receivers for the Browns were determined on that Saturday to be high-risk uh, close contacts to a person who tested positive for COVID-19. So because of that, the Browns spent that Saturday afternoon scrambling to elevate practice fill-ins, practice squad fill-ins. And then early Sunday morning in a parking lot, they were out there trying to go through a walkthrough to get those players up to speed because they needed them. Big big reason why the Browns lost to the Jets. Then this past week in the game against the Steelers, the building, the Browns building was shut down four times during the week because of COVID protocols. And they had only two in-person practices. Three of their coaches couldn't attend the game, including offensive line coach Bill Callahan, formerly of the Washington football team, one of the better line coaches, formerly the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, formerly of the, we must be the dumbest group of people playing the game of football, coach of the Oakland Raiders. So, But uh, as an offensive line coach, he's uh, one of the game's elite in that department. He missed the game because, or he couldn't attend the game, along with some other top assistants. And credit to uh, Mayfield and Chubb and the rest of the team leaders and Stefanski for keeping the team on course and getting them into the playoffs. So, again, Stefanski moving on this week. Two additional members of the coaching staff. Two players tested positive for COVID-19 that won't be available for the AFC wildcard game against the Steelers on Sunday. If the game remains as scheduled, we, we don't know what else is going to come up from, from uh, this nonsense. So, special teams coach for the Browns, he's going to be serving as the acting head coach. The Browns shut down their practice facility today, Tuesday, for the fifth time in 10 days to conduct con 
track uh, tracing. And with all that being said, I still believe that the Browns have a chance. I believe that they have a real chance. The team that got blown out playing the fully loaded squad or the fully uh, the, their full team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, that Steelers team that blew out Cleveland earlier in the uh, season this year, totally different teams on both ends of the spectrum, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. One, Cleveland is trending up. Pittsburgh, the way they're playing, is trending down. So I'm, I'm not going to say put all your money on Cleveland, but I think if the Browns won, I don't think it would be that big of an upset. I know that the Vegas oddmakers odd are going to probably have the Steelers at, at the favorites, but again, I believe in the team, this Cleveland Brown team. I believe that if they stick to their game plan, and Pittsburgh has a great defense, one of the best defensive league defenses in the NFL, but I'm not completely sold on Roethlisberger. Now, maybe this week off will give Ben the juice in his arm to start throwing the ball down the field more, but we are speaking about a guy who's turned himself into an older version of Drew Bledsoe, from a quarterback position from the pocket, which means that he ain't moving anywhere. He's a, he's a statue now, which is one of the reasons why it's he tries to get the ball out of his hand so quickly. So when you got Miles Garrett rushing in and doing what he needs to do to put some pressure on the quarterback, the defense for Cleveland, again, it wasn't, Roethlisberger wasn't on the field. I understand that, but still 22 points. I think with the offense that Cleveland has, that's very doable if they're going to hold the Steelers around the 17 to 24 point mark. I think the offense for the Browns, the running game for the Browns, Baker Mayfield at the quarterback, the weapons, um, the fact that now if they're going to have the receivers rip-roaring, ready to go, we don't know yet, but if that's the possibility, if that's the uh, inevitability for the Browns, no, wouldn't surprise me at all if the Cleveland Browns moved on and beat the Steelers. Then, if you do that, Possibly if you do that, maybe just for a quick, just for a quick moment, just for a quick moment, maybe then you could display the enthusiasm and the joy that you displayed when you beat the Steelers to get into the playoffs. You do that now in the playoffs to start to move forward. Then, like the house Payne would say, jump up, jump up and get down. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things are getting down on the NFL. 
do, 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 don't walk away. Not now that I'm inspired. I've been listening to that song, man. I had to play that song. Number one, Levi Stubbs is Levi Stubbs. The four tops are four tops, or the four tops. But man, I've been singing that song like nonstop the entire afternoon. Don't walk away, don't walk away. And not now that I'm inspired. Oh, won't you stay? Please, won't you stay? Come on, girl, come around now. People are saying like, damn, I, I used to like the four tops. Hmm. Thanks, Wendell, you son of a bitch. Nah, man, but I've been jammed to that all afternoon. So I said, why not put it on the podcast, man? Let the people know, let you know what I'm digging on, what I'm feeling, what I'm all about in terms of today as far as music is concerned. I, was on a, I don't know, I was listening to somebody talk about podcasting and all this kind of stuff. And they were like, yeah, you know, your broadcast will be so much better if you start singing before your podcast. I don't know if that's, I have no idea. I don't know if it mentally puts you in a good mood or I don't know what it is, but I always try to do that. You know, a couple of, uh, I try to take a good nap. I always try to take a really good bowel movement. I try to, uh, you know, get myself in a good mood, you know, mental-wise by uh, singing. No one wants to hear that bullshit for me singing. I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish that, wish that on my worst enemy. But uh, yeah, that's how I get started. That's how I get moving and grooving. That's how I come in here, and I'm having. I'm having such a good time. I'm so fa- fired up about this. <laughs> fired up about this. So yeah, good times. Good stuff. Really good stuff. Had a good day today. Really good elementary school class. Enjoyed it. Doing the Google Meet thing, but. Uh, you know, good school in the southwest side of town, so I enjoyed myself with the kids, and uh, yeah, I'm rip-roaring, ready to go. Got my stuff ready to go in terms of talking about what's happening in the world of sports. Um, the only thing that could have brought me down, luckily, I had it on mute for the most part, and I checked out a podcast, a uh, wrestling podcast, for their thoughts and opinions, uh, John Pollock and Wei Ting, two of those two guys I always listen to in terms of their thoughts and, and uh, opinions about what's going down as far as the wrestling world is concerned, the WWE. But I had the uh, wrestling on the on the television, on the tele, yesterday. Man, that that's such a bad product. It's such a bad product. It's such a bad product. It's such a bad product. I mean, we're we're speaking about a guy in me who's been watching wrestling for over forty years, man. It's 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 horrible. Raw is terrible. Raw is beyond horrific, and it has nothing to do with Drew McIntyre, who I think is a worthy champion, who I think could, you know, really do some things if he had the proper guidance or talent or storylines to go with. I think that McIntyre is a guy who can be the the champ of Raw and be a really good champ. I think he's doing a good job. I just think that he could be elevated even more. I think the match between him and Keith Lee was really good. I don't know what they're doing with that big man, but, uh, I mean, he's being wasted. Braun Strowman, where's Braun Strowman been? I don't know if he's injured or whatever, but ever since he attacked the general manager and got taken off, I don't know what he's been doing. I don't don't know if he's taking some time off or doing whatever, but, I mean, the women's division is a joke. They brought the legends back, and, you know, Randy Orton, again, it's like, it's just, it's just garbage. This whole fiend deal, it's just, it's just garbage. It's just garbage. I like the Hurt Business. They they have some potential, but New Day, I've, I've felt New Day for me has been annoying, has been past its expiration date now for years. And now I just think that they're a character of themselves. Those guys aren't any good. I'd be interested to see what they're going to do with Big E. Hopefully they can get some type of push so 
when WrestleMania season comes, he possibly could maybe get some momentum for him to uh, fight Roman Reigns or to do something, kind of like what Kofi Kingston did when he beat Daniel Bryan for the strap, where nobody thought that he was going to be doing anything, but the uh, the people, the crowd, the momentum, the WWE universe got behind him and forced Vince to uh, make that decision. Same like when they got behind Daniel Bryan for him to become the uh, WWE champion, or I think he beat, what, triple threat match with Batista and um, Triple H. So, you know, the, the folks can move Vince in a direction to where they want to go, but, you know, those guys aren't in the... Aren't in the um, aren't in the arenas or anything like that because of COVID, it's entirely different. But Jesus fucking A Christ, man. This this whole theme, with this whole program with The uh, Fiend and Randy Orton, it's just... <sighs> this big man is a billionaire. Brilliant bil- uh, a businessman. I, I, you know, I, I'm not... I don't know, man. I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting up here talking about I could do his job because Lord knows I could not. But just some shit just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, so, all right, so we have it here. We have it here. Look, I'm, I'm all for suspending. I'll get back to I'll get back to football in a minute, man. Can I get this on my chest, please? Do you mind? Stand down, sit down, shut the fuck up, thank you. Something I got to get off my chest with this shit. Number one, all right, you have The Fiend and Randy Orton. The guy basically burns the man alive at the Inferno match, and I'm willing to suspend reality for wrestling. I get it. I understand it. So... The Fiend, I know people like The Fiend. I mean, just the whole concept, the whole situation is stupid to me. But, okay, whatever. I mean, if they like it and it generates money, and whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with it, I guess. But, so, here we go at the pay-per-view. Randy Orton set this guy on fire. Set this guy on fire. Fire, for real. I mean, not for real, for real. But, I mean, the storyline, he sets this guy on fire. The next Monday, or the next time they come back for Raw... No mention of it when they when they come back to Raw, the first night after the pay per view. Would you think if a guy was being burned alive on a pay per view that somebody would say, hmm, you know what? I think that people might want to uh, kind of start off the show. That might be the the hottest thing going in terms of exactly what happened from the pay per view as far as the Raw brand is concerned. We saw someone actually being burned alive. No, no mention of it. No big deal. This, that, the other. We're just moving on to something else. Just, yeah, kind of that, That's down in the pecking order in terms of uh, what we want to talk about. So now the week before you have Alexa Bliss, the beautiful and engaged Alexa Bliss. She poured gasoline all over herself because she's so distraught that uh, Randy Orton came into the fire funhouse and, I don't know, did something to Ramblin' Rack or Ramblin' whoever, the the the... the, the People, whatever. So he does all that shit, and she's all upset, and you know because he burned the the fiend, who I guess you know she's playing. Um, who is she playing? I mean, who the who the who the nut job? Harley Quinn. So she's playing Harley Quinn uh, to the Joker. So she's playing that role. The fiend's being the Joker, even though I think the fiend is now a baby face. Keep up with me on this. So here's this fucking clown. So she pours gasoline all over herself and everything, and tells Randy Orton, "Light the flat, light it." Light it! Light it! So Raw goes off the week before with Randy Orton holding a match in his hand, contemplating whether he should light this woman on fire and burn her alive. Just like, uh, just like, uh, he did with the Feeney. Alright? We don't know if he did it or not. Raw goes off the air with him holding the candle and having this devilish look on his face. Like, ooh, should I or shouldn't I? So, here's Raw coming back next week. Again, you would think 
that right away, let's, let's pay off the tease. It's been an entire week. Did Alexa Bliss live? Is she being burned alive? Did Randy Orton light her on fire? Did he not? Exactly what happened? Did someone come down to save her? What exactly happened? They start with Hulk Hogan doing some ridiculous phone promo. And then after that, which was pretty weak, then they come back to Miss TV with the New Day, who mentioned nothing about it. it was like, what? How? Where? Huh? What? So folks are coming back saying, exactly what happened to Alexa Bliss? Nothing. Nothing. And Alexa Bliss wasn't even there. No mention of her. No nothing. Just, oh yeah, I, you know, later on, the sexy Charlie Caruso interviewed uh, Orton. He's like, yeah, I decided not to do it. And it really hurt me and it really pained me because the voices inside of me were telling me to do it, do it, do it. And it, I should have done it. And all this. It's like, come on. It's like, what? who? I've never written a story. I'm not a WWE writer. It, I don't know. I don't know. It, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me. But it's just, I mean, you know, the women's division is bad. Nia Jax on the on the microphone. Please take please take the microphone away from her, please. Shayna Baszler. I mean, she's being wasted. I mean, Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke were working hard, but I don't know, man. I don't know. And then you got Charlotte and Oscar, and then you know, I, I, it's just. I'm glad that Charlotte's back, but it's like. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Raw, but it's it's an unwatchable product. And for a guy who spent years, decades, making Raw on Monday nights, must-see television, it's uh, pretty sad now that for the last, I don't know, almost going on a year now, I've just had zero interest in Raw. I mean, if it's on the, if it's on the television screen... I'll put it on mute and I'll either listen to music, listen to a podcast, surf the internet, do something else. It's just kind of like, it's just kind of like, you know, it's like there. But, you know, I, I have no interest. I mean, Samoa Joe, when I do listen, I think he's done a great job as the uh, commentary on the commentary. But Raw has become unwatchable, which is sad. Because as a businessman, I, I, I would love to spend one week with Vince McMahon. Just, and just as far as how does he conduct business, how does he do business? How does this billionaire? How did this billionaire become a billionaire? And how does he conduct his business? I would just love to be in the meetings. I would just love to, uh, you know, take notes and learn some things about, you know, getting to be filthy, stinking rich. And no, it's not by exploiting people and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a little bit of that with Vince, but I mean, you know, hey, a billionaire is a billionaire. What can I say? Wendell's world in sports and sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, got that off my chest. Let's get into some football. What in the what in the holy hell were the Philadelphia Eagles doing on Sunday night? Could you answer that question for me? Because I have no clue. That was an embarrassment to the league on so many levels. It was uh, it was awe inspiring, and it's like, what the hell is going on? Well, Washington, the NFC least championship skins, the Washington seven and nine skins, the Washington soon to be one and done skins. They won the, their division, first division title since 2015. They beat Philadelphia, finishing the season for Philadelphia 4-11-1. They, they beat them 20-14. They won the game despite two turnovers, 248 total yards on offense. Alex Smith was out there playing with a strained calf that limited his mobility. That's the reason why he was sacked three times and intercepted a couple. But, you know, I mean, take a look at Philadelphia. They weren't that much better on the offensive end. Jalen Hurts was far from perfect on Sunday night when you're talking about 72 yards 
passing, 7 of 20. He rushed for 34 yards and two touchdowns, but had a couple of misses. He was playing with a couple of four-string offensive tackles and some practice-level receivers, but still, Alshon Jefferson, Alshon Jeffries was a healthy scratch. Carson Wentz was a healthy scratch, so I don't know. I don't know. So, But the whole deal, of course, was centered around Doug Peterson putting in Nate Stubfield after the game. I, I thought Jalen Hurts was injured, or I didn't know what the hell was going on, but Jalen Hurts was sitting there with a look on his face like, man, that ain't right. He, he mouthed those words. NBC caught him saying that. I, I agree 100%. I, Nate Stubfield. And the explanation from Coach Peterson after the game saying that he wanted to you know, win the game and also play Nate Stubfield, it, it didn't make any sense to me. In fact, this is exactly the, uh, the uh, comment that Coach Peterson made after the game. Yes, I was coaching win to win. Uh, yes, that was my decision solely. Um, Nate has uh, obviously been here for uh, four years, uh, and uh, I felt that uh, he he deserved an opportunity to uh, to get some to get some snaps. And um, um, listen, uh, if if there's anything out there that that thinks that I was not trying to win the game, I mean, you know. Ertz is out there. Brandon Graham's out there. Darius Slay's out there. You know, all our top guys are still on the field at the end. So uh, we were we were going to win the game. There you have it. You believe it? I sure don't. <laughs> he was coaching to win, and that was solely his decision. I, I believe that it was solely his decision. I don't know if anybody would think it would be a good idea to put in Nate Studfield in a winnable game. I don't. I don't think that came from anybody else except for uh, Coach Peterson, but. To say that he was coaching the win and then talk about Nate has been here for four years and I felt he deserved an opportunity to get some snaps. What? What the hell are you talking about? Like what? Like this guy has been, uh, this guy is autistic or something like that or he's a special needs kid and he's been a great guy and he's been on the basketball team or the football team as a mascot. So, you know, just for the ha, ha, he, he, good feeling of it, we put him in for a play. I mean, I'm sorry. Was he expecting once Nate Stubfield to hit the uh, field? And because he's been there four years and he deserved an opportunity to get some snaps that all of a sudden the uh, Washington football team was going to let him score just for a feel-good story? I mean, what the hell was all this about? Was he a Shriners kid or some nonsense like this? I mean, you do this type of bullshit when you're in high school, when you're in college. Yeah, sure, no big deal. But man, this is the NFL. You know what he deserved? He deserved a paycheck. Nate Studville only deserved a paycheck. He doesn't deserve an opportunity if he doesn't get one. You know, this is not something where, you know, you get your opportunities based on how long, based on your tenure. I would guess. I would think. Everybody who's played the game of football at the highest level in the NFL, they sit there and they go, hey, man, you know, it's all about winning the football game. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing. Do do everything humanly possible. If you're a player and you're a coach, yes, the fans, yes, the ownership, yes, they think about, draft picks. They think about how they're going to be in a couple of years. And they think about, you know, if we could just lose this game and lose that game that we could get into this uh, draft position. So we can draft this guy. We can draft this guy. We can draft this guy. I'm one of those. I'll raise my hand. The next segment, I'm going to be talking about how disappointed and frustrated I am, despite the fact that Washington had made the playoffs. So yeah, I, I, I get it. I understand from a player's perspective, like, look, man, we're trying to win every single game. We put our time and our effort and everything into winning a football game. So, no, we're not going out there to tank. We're not going out there to lose. We're not going out there to appease people who are trying to 
know, try to see what we're going to be looking like in 2022. We're not doing any of that stuff. When you're a player, you're one play away from your career being over. So there's no guarantee that anybody is going to be on any team next season in terms of moving forward. So, yeah, you wouldn't expect the players for the Eagles to be jumping up and down and celebrating because of the loss that the Eagles went from the number nine pick to the number six pick. I, I get it. But still, that's just a bullshit way to do it, Coach. Just an absolute bullshit way. Look, if you wanted to put his Sudfeld after the half, I got you. I get it. If you wanted to start him the entire game, understood, I got you. But the optics look so bad. Just look so bad. That, uh, you know, it, it was just mind-boggling to me. Making the point that, you know, Zach Ertz and Darius Slay, Brandon Graham, and all the top guys from around the field, well, except for Jalen Hurts or even Carson Wentz, Wide receiver Alshon Jeffrey again. I mean those guys, Jeffrey's and Wentz, healthy scratches. I mean, I mean, maybe it's a situation. The, the, the comments that he made about him trying to win the game. If those are the decisions that you're making to try to win a football game, and you're really sincere about that, that makes it even more justifiable to fire him. I, I don't know what the job security of Doug Peterson is, but geez, man, I was really. If I'm the if I'm Jeffrey Laurie, I'm, I'm like, or oh, the owner. Oh, I forgot the owner. I don't know. Is, is it Laurie? I don't know. Whatever the Eagles owner, I would have a meeting with him and be like, Doug, were you really serious about you are really trying to do everything humanly possible to have the team win by putting? Could you explain to me again if that's the case? Why you would put in Nate Sudfeld in a three point game in the fourth quarter? Because I just don't. I don't. That doesn't seem like it's winning to me. Well, yeah, he. I just thought that, uh, you know, he deserved a chance. Based on what? Because he was 5 for 12 for 32 yards, fumbled a couple of times. He looked through an interception. I mean, what was there something in practice? Was there something during the week that made you say, wow, you know what? If Hurts comes out and struggles, I think that uh, we need to put in Nate Sudfield because the way he's playing this week in practice, I think that he could really go ahead and do some things against Washington. I Let's put it this way. If the game was tied or Hurts had been doing a little bit better, a lot better, would Nate Sudfield have come in? Like if if Jalen Hurts was setting the world on fire, instead of being 7 for 20, he was 17 for 20 for 234 yards and a couple of touchdowns, and he was, you know, in that ball game going into the fourth quarter, would you have coached then go ahead and put in Nate Sudfeld? Because, well, I mean, you know, Jalen, you're doing great, but I deserve, I mean, Nate's been here for four years. Let's give him a shot. I mean, of course you wouldn't have done that. That would have been even more outrageous. So Jalen Hurts really, you could say, helped the situation or make it a little bit more plausible, even though there was no, I don't know any plausibility, but you couldn't point to say Hurts was setting the world on fire. So maybe if you squint hard enough, and I mean, we do live in a country right now where there's 70-something million people stupid enough to vote for the fucking idiot that we have in the... uh, uh, in the Oval Office right now, and there's still millions of people who are fucking stupid enough to believe that the election was rigged, and I do live in a country where there's fucking people stupid enough to uh, go ahead and, and vote for uh, Kelly Loeffler and some other fucking idiots down in Georgia. Uh, so, you know, hey, the situation where I was trying to give Nate some snaps because he's been here for four years and he deserved an opportunity. I mean, you know, I live in a country that's stupid enough to believe something like that, but for those who have common sense in this country... And across the world, I don't see it. <laughs> I don't, and you, you can't tell me that wasn't uh, taking 
in some way, shape, or form. Maybe, maybe it was a situation where I don't know if it's Lori, Howie Roseman, someone from the upper management position came and said, you know, we really wouldn't mind if you lost this game because taking a look at the draft uh, positions, we win this game. We're drafting number nine. If we lose, we're drafting number six. So, I mean, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, Doug, but the owner would like it a little bit better if um, you got the number six pick instead of the number nine pick and Maybe possibly your job might be a little bit more secure if you go ahead and you do this favor for him. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating. I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with reasons why Peterson would go ahead and do something like that. And of course, you're not going to sit up there and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I wanted to tank. So, you know, what the hell? I mean, if you wanted to tank again, you should have played Studfield the entire game if that was the case. I mean, he does have a point. Zach Ertz, Darius Slay, Brandon Graham. So if he was from the get-go looking to tank, then um, why were those guys playing? Why was Jalen Hurts playing? I don't know. I still thought he tanked, but I'm just thinking now because people are like, the NFL needs to punish and they're going to be doing an event. You can't do any of that stuff, man. I mean, yeah, he was tanking, but there's not enough evidence to, to, to show that he was tanking. Why? Because he played Knight Sudfield? Let me tell you something. Mason Rudolph played against Pittsburgh. I mean, he played for Pittsburgh against Cleveland. Patrick Mahomes didn't play against the uh, Chargers. There were some teams out there who didn't play their starters. Were they tanking? I mean, was Kansas City tanking? Just because they won the division, just because they wrapped up the number one seed. So winning or losing for them meant nothing. So they weren't quote-unquote tanking, but by not having their starters, by not having Patrick Mahomes out, out there, they greatly decreased their ability to win. So in a in a way, in a in a definitive way, in a definition way, you could say that they were tanking. So are you going to punish the Philadelphia Eagles but not punish the Kansas City defending champions? Are you going to punish the Pittsburgh Steelers because T.J. Watt and Ben Roethlisberger, they didn't even make the fucking trip up to Cleveland. So that decreased greatly the uh, chances of Pittsburgh winning the game and that also kind of bastardized the game that was basically, for one team, a, a playoff game. If Cleveland wins, they're in. If they lose, they're not. So for the integrity of the game, shouldn't have, shouldn't Pittsburgh have played its starters and treated it also like a playoff game? No, because the Pittsburgh Steelers, they do what they need to do. It's their team. It's their squad. It's their organization. So the New York Giants or the Washington football team or the NFL offices, don't be telling the Philadelphia Eagles, how to run their organization, how to run their team. Now, you want to buy our fucking team and decide what you want to do with it. That's that's one thing. But, you know, in, in a situation like this, again, while I think Doug Peterson basically said, I don't give a fuck, we win or lose this game, and basically I'm throwing away the chances of winning this game by playing Nate Studfield, while basically he just said fuck you to the guys who were out there playing. That's not something to where a draft pick needs to be taken or a fine or anything like that. It's just, it just doesn't warrant that. So there we go. One group of people, before I get out of here on this subject, the one group of people that should not be saying anything, should not be whining at all, is the New York Giants football organization, especially the players or the coaches. That's the last uh, group of people I feel sorry for. And they had those guys on Twitter and all those kind of things when everything was going down. 
you know, what's going on, this is bullshit, this is mind-blowing, Joe Judge goes out here and talks about the integrity of the game, man, fuck you, man, I mean, you, you, you lost 10 games, get out of my face, I, I don't want to hear you whining, I don't want to hear you complaining, you know what, if you would have gotten the job done, then guess what, you wouldn't have to worry about who was playing, who was playing, who did any other, worry about your own squad, don't worry about what the Philadelphia Eagles are doing. Now, next season, if you want to take out your anger and your frustration on those guys and you're up 49 to nothing with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter and you're still running fake reverses and double uh, reverses and flea flickers and all those type of things because you're trying to do what the New England Patriots did in 2007, 2009, the year they went undefeated in the regular season and were accused of cheating, Spygate, and Bill Belichick said, Spygate this bitch, and um, he put up a... You know, he, he put up some, some some pretty bad whoopings on some teams during that season. And people were like, well, damn, Bill. I mean, it was 56 to nothing and you're still going for, and you're still going for scores. What's up with that? And Bill Belichick was like, playing football. Just playing football. If the New York Giants next year want to go ahead and do that and hurt a few people in the process legally, then, you know, so be it. But for to hear those guys play the burner role, again, you were 6-10. and 10. You were 6-10. and 10. Stop whining. Stop complaining. And of all the teams, I guess, from the NFC least, who deserve to go to the playoffs, who had the best chance, I think, of doing something in the playoffs against the Buccaneers, I would say it is the Washington football team, especially with that front line. The Giants have a really good defense also, but you have a really good front four in Washington, um, you have some pretty good skill players on the offensive side of the ball for Washington. So if somebody's going to uh, make the playoff from that division, I guess it's going to be Washington. And, and really, when you think about it, I mean, unlike maybe in the AFC where the Dolphins won 10 games and they're not going to be in the playoffs and the Wild this, that, and the other, there's no situation in the NFC where you could take a look at another team and say, man, you know what? That team definitely deserved to be in over Washington. I mean, by a country mile. There's no team in the NFC that's missing the playoffs because they won 11 games or 10 games or 9 games or finished above 500. And it's like, damn, this this sucks because we have to give a uh, playoff berth to a team just because they won the division in one of the worst divisions in football over the last couple of years. So the teams that were on the outside looking in, the way the uh, Washington defense is, Washington would give them a game. So there's nothing egregious, really egregious in terms of a team that's being left out because of the uh, rules of the NFL. So there you go. So Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the loss gave the Eagles, again, the sixth pick in the NFL draft. It'll be Philadelphia's fifth top 10 pick since 1999. In 99, they drafted Donovan McNabb. Remember the boos and the, oh, so guy sucks. The... Defensive tackle Corey Simon was taken number six in 2000. Lane Johnson, the right tackle, was taken number four in 2013. And then our boy Carson Wentz, who's demanding a trade. He wants out of Philly. If things are going to be the same, he was drafted number two out of North Dakota State in 2016. I've already discussed a couple of podcasts about what they should do with Carson Wentz. New, new, uh, new beginning. I think, but they're not in the, they, they, they don't have to trade the guy. And they shouldn't be forced to trade the guy. And Carson Wentz, the last thing he should be doing is sitting up there demanding that he should be traded. Really? Really? After the season you had? 
You're really going to be sitting up there and be pouting and crying and complaining about the situation in Philadelphia? You created that situation in Philadelphia. No one gives a guy a contract $128 million for four years if they don't think that he's going to be the franchise quarterback. They believe in you, Carson. You're the one that... Um, you're the one that didn't perform up the capabilities. No one's screwing you over. No one's not giving you an opportunity. No one's not giving you a fair chance. How many games did y'all have to lose? How many times did you have to be bad? How many years do we have to go? How many seasons do we have to put up with this stuff in terms of Carson Wentz? Come back. No one's saying that Jalen Hurts is the future for next season. No one's saying that at all. Rededicate yourself. Find yourself as a football player. Find that passion. Find that competitive spirit. Come back in the training camp. Kick Jalen Hurts' ass. Went back to the locker room and become the starter for the Philadelphia Eagles by earning it. Don't be looking as a as a as a as a way out because the situation between you and Peterson has become untenable. Well, you know why it's become untenable because you stink as a quarterback this season. Not not entirely your fault. I understand the offensive line was injured, banged up, and it sucks. I mean, how many times can Jason Peter Peters not finish a full season? One of the better offensive linemen in the league. I understand that the wide receivers are subpar. I understand that Zach Ertz is not going to be your tight end probably next season if you go ahead and come back. I understand all those things. I understand that, uh, you know, you weren't given a fair shot. But, but guess who's also not complaining and whining and asking for a way out? And he's still balling week after week after week. And he's putting up numbers and he's performing. And really, he's a top five quarterback that no one knows about. If anybody has, a, if anybody has the right to complain and whine and talk about, I want to be out of here and all this kind of nonsense, it's Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson has every single right to be sitting up here looking around going, what the fuck? What the fuck do you expect me to do with this? What the fuck do you expect me to do trying to win with these fucking clowns? Really? Moving forward, what am I supposed to do? Oh, we have a number three pick in the draft. Oh, that's right, I forgot. Bill O'Brien gave our first first round uh, pick to the Miami Dolphins. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Now, Deshaun Watson wasn't bench. You know why Deshaun Watson, Watson wasn't bench, Carson? Because he was balling. Because he was playing. Because he was quarterbacking. And you take a look at your situation, and you take a look at Deshaun Watson's situation, and damn, they're similar. Poor offensive line, not very good weapons, no uh, no running back to speak up to take some of the pressure off of them. So I, I don't want to hear Carson Wentz whine and complain and all this kind of nonsense. You got opportunity, 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 opportunity to do something, and you didn't do anything. And this back, it was a small sample size, but guess what? The offense looked a hell of a lot better when Jalen Hurts was in the game other than you. So I, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what you're talking about. Rededicate yourself mentally. Get it together. I mean, you don't have to sit there and have a, uh, you know, you don't have to sit there and, and you and Doug Peterson have a father-son relationship or you're going to name your first son Doug Peterson Wentz. I mean, you don't have to be breaking bread. You guys don't have to live next to each other. You guys don't have to go on family vacations. You guys' wives don't have to be best of friends and pen pals and Facebook friends and all that type of nonsense. Just, you know, be the quarterback that we think that you can be, Carson. Because there's another thing. Not too many people are give, giving up on you. 
No one's sitting here talking about, ah, Carson Wentz, the quarterback that could have been down the drain, this, that, and the other. I was one of those guys at the beginning of the season that was talking about how Carson Wentz in a couple of years is going to be part of the elite quarterback club that's going to be part of that group when the when the old heads retire, when the Roethlisberger's and the Breezes and the Brady's and, and the Aaron Rodgers retire. I thought Carson Wentz was going to be sitting at that table of guys who you want to uh, show off to those who are interested in the league. I still think that quarterback is there. Physically, he needs to regain health. And mentally, he needs to get it together. But come on, Carson. Stop bitching. Stop moaning. Stop whining. Stop complaining. Man up. Pull your pants up and compete. This job could still be yours. This job should still be yours to begin the 2021 NFL season. It's a matter of are you man enough? Are you mentally strong enough to make that happen? Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Namaste, wassalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, shalom, bonjour, que pasa, what's happening, what's going on, what's happening, what's going down, what's happening, what is things like, things like in your part of the woods, in your neck of the woods. Ah, man, sitting up here watching the Lakers and the uh, Memphis Grizzlies. I gotta get a little bit more into what the Lakers are doing. I give it up for LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Those guys are out there playing after the short turnaround. And if I was those guys, I'd be like, I'd pull a shack. Like, yeah, sorry guys. Uh, you know, with the short off season and everything, yeah, the surgery I was gonna have. Yeah, I'm waiting until uh, I don't know, maybe like January to have it, and I'll see you in March, and I'll get in shape by April. And by the time the playoffs rolls around and we're sitting in the sixth seed, we'll be cool because I'll be a hundred percent fresh. Rip roaring, ready to go, and uh, we'll be whipping some ass. But uh, if I'm LeBron, man, I'm you know I'm I'm taking off the month of January. I'm not playing. See you, see you in February. You guys uh, go on without me. I'll uh, you know I'll see you then. I'll be down in Miami or L.A. or whatever, working out, doing my own thing. But uh, you know I'm definitely not uh, definitely not coming back after the uh, <laughs> after everything I did last season. So there you go. So I I commend them. Uh, both LeBron and AD. I also commend the, the uh, Laker organization for, uh, you know, still putting out a competitive product for those guys, for the uh, for the fans of LA. So good for them. Good for them. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So speaking about the NFL, and I was speaking about the Philadelphia Eagles tanking. And I was speaking about from a player's perspective that that's one thing they never do. And it doesn't matter what your position on the team is. 
as far as a player or a coach, you never sit there and talk about, well, you know, we're going to be playing for it next season in terms of who plays, who doesn't play. There's only 16 games. This isn't the NBA. This isn't the NHL. This is not Major League Baseball. This is only 16 games. And in the sport of football, unlike, say, for instance, basketball, even if you do get yourself a generational talent, in football, you still have to surround them with a lot of pieces for that team to be really good. It's not a situation where one guy can go to one team and change around the fortunes, a la LeBron James. There is no LeBron James possible in the NFL because not one player can make that huge an effect on the team in a positive way for them to be made mediocre than all of a sudden winning championships. So what the players are absolutely right for those, oh, we need the number one pick, we need the number one pick. Well, you can go ahead and get the number one pick and you can go get Jesus Christ in the helmet and shoulder pads, but it's not going to mean that you're going to win the championship if you have garbage surrounding him or if you're a part of a dysfunctional organization. Well, I don't know, man. I think if, if Jesus Christ wanted to come down and play quarterback, I think that he has some advantages that might supersede anything earthly here that could have him win championships. So, okay, outside of Jesus Christ, there ain't nobody who's going to be coming into the league that's going to be able to turn around the fortunes. So the players are absolutely right. That's the reason why we play hard every single day. That's the reason why we play every single game to win. And when you bastardize that, that's a slap in the face of uh, everybody who's um, playing hard for you who's basically putting their health on the line, who basically, let's be for real here, who are taking um, minutes and days and months and years off their lives to play this game of football. When you leave the game of football, you have taken years off your life. Exp uh, uh, exp uh, exp What's the word I'm looking for here, goddammit? They're taking years of off your life when you play the game of football because nobody's supposed to, the human body is not supposed to be going through that type of punishment for years and years and years. Expectancy, thank you. So the life expectancy goes down after you finish playing football. So the least that you could do if you're a coach is to please put us in a position for us to win games if you're going to be taking years off my life, minutes, days, months off my life. So what Doug Peterson did by playing Nate Stutterfield was uh, pretty disrespectful to the locker room. It'd be interesting to see if the locker room forgives him for what he did. But moving on to that, winning and losing, and the perspective of the fans compared to the players, if a team is bad, if a team wants to tank, if a team is thinking about draft picks, brings us down to the Washington 7-9 and nine skins, the Snyder skins, the NFC East Championship skins, um, making it to the playoffs, Winning the division for the first time in a few years. I would rather have gone 1 and 14, 1 and 15. I would rather have gone 2 and 14 and gotten a number one or number two draft pick, especially the way Justin Fields played on Sunday against, uh, Saturday against the, uh, against Clemson. Yeah, man. I, I would have loved to have failed for Fields. I would have loved to tank, tank for Trevor, losing for Lawrence. You know, I, I that's, I'm glad that we made the playoffs in one sense, but what does it mean? What does it mean if you're Washington? If you're a Washington fan, what does it mean? Wow, we get to go to the playoffs. Okay, what is it? So that's that's kind of like the ceiling here. I mean, I don't, what's for this season? Yeah, I mean, what we go from three and thirteen to seven and nine, crappy division. 
I don't think we beat anybody worth a damn except um, except Pittsburgh. But what does it mean? In the big picture, what does it mean going to the playoffs? Does it catapult us to, you know, from losing in the wild card round to making it to the next round to ultimately making it to the Super Bowl? I mean, are we starting the the the, the journey toward that? Don't think so. Don't think so. And again, seven and nine, winning a bad division, and then losing to Tampa Bay in the first round of the of the wild card. The Sunday or the Monday after that, what does it mean? We have to kind of take a look and say, okay, where are we going here? What are we going to be doing here? Our schedule is going to change because we are division champs, so the schedule is going to get a lot harder. We don't have a quarterback. There's so many things that we need. What we're building culture. We're building a winning attitude. All that stuff is great, and all that stuff is wonderful. But again, as I mentioned it before, time and time again this season, when I was talking about, I don't want us to win. I don't want us to win. I want us to lose. I want us to lose and lose and lose and lose and lose. Once again, how many of these players are going to be on the team when we make that turn to be a team that's going to be vying for championships, being a real playoff team, being a real threat? We have... A foundation in place for that. Our defensive line. They're young. They're talented. I don't know if we're going to be moving to the next level. I don't know if we're going to be able to pay all those guys. But as of right now, we've got ourselves a young, strong defensive front that's one of the better defensive fronts in the league. we got a defense that potentially can be an elite defense. That could be a top five defense. That's great. That's a good start. That's an awesome start. But... What are we going to do on the other side? What are we going to do to elevate ourselves to get ourselves better? Namely, from the quarterback flipping position. What are we going to do? Now, maybe we'll luck out to get Trey Lance. Maybe Trey Lance out of North Dakota, South Dakota, one of the North Dakotas. Maybe he'll maybe he'll slide. A guy who at North Dakota State a couple of seasons ago led the team to the what one double A championship, and I think he went through the entire season without throwing an interception and. He's got all the physical tools. People always say, you know, the ceiling for Trey Lance is high. And it could be higher than someone like a Justin Fields. It could be higher than even someone like a Trevor Lawrence. But, you know, that's a a big maybe. So maybe because, I don't know, in quarterbacking, you know someone's going to reach. So I've been taking a look at a lot of the mock drafts and People are talking about at 19, Washington has a chance to draft Trey Lance. I'm I'm thinking more we might have to, if we are going to be drafting a quarterback, are we going to reach for Mac Jones? Are we going to reach for Kyle Trask? I mean, I I think in a league that values quarterbacks so much that Fields, Lawrence, those two are, those are one and two. Those, Those guys are going to be gone. And the BYU quarterback, Zach Wilson, I think someone's going to reach on him. And I think someone is going to take a flyer on Trey Lance. They're going to look at his potential. I'm quite sure that they're going to, he's going to be wild. They're going to wild. They're going to be wild by his athleticism and his raw talent and ability. But someone's going to take a chance on him before he falls all the way down to 19, unless there's some rumors going around that he's smoking dope or beating up women or he has serious character flaws, which I don't know. I, I haven't met the guy. I don't know anything about the guy from that standpoint, but if that checks out, someone's going to reach for him. So at 19, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And when we get to that position, 
has this season been worth it in terms of us winning the division, a bad division, and then losing to Tampa Bay? Now, I'm going to go on the assumption that we're going to lose to Tampa Bay, but what 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 are we going to do for the quarterback position? We're going to run it back with Alex Smith, a guy who's 36 years old, who had a whose leg could have been amputated, who's nothing more now than a check down uh, a passer, who really doesn't throw the ball down the field, who's not a game changer. If we draft the quarterback, maybe Alex Smith could be that bridge. He did it with Colin Kaepernick. He did it with Patrick Mahomes, so he's used to it. I don't think this is going to be a situation where he's going to be fighting it or not give uh, everything that he's got. He's a great teammate. He's a great guy. So we don't have to worry about him doing a Chris Chandler, what he did with Steve McNair. We don't have to worry about what Brett Favre did to Aaron Rodgers when he first came into the league. We don't have to worry about what Tom Brady would do to all of his backups when they got into or any draft picks when Garoppolo was drafted by New England. We don't have to worry about um, Tom Brady being insecure in the situation where he's not going to be helping him out or doing anything. So that, that, that's not going to be the problem we're going to have with Alex Smith. But what quarterback are we going to be getting? Are we going to be drafting him in the first round, second round, third round, project? And how long is this project going to be? One year, two years? If we draft a quarterback in the first year, he's going to have to play. If we draft a quarterback in maybe the third or fourth round, yeah, we could have a year to where he sits and learns as such and, be the, and, and, and is the backup quarterback. But if we're going to draft somebody in the first round, the expectations are no matter how raw, no matter un, no matter how prepared or not prepared that he is, he's going to have to see some action next season, sooner rather than later. And if we're going to get this quarterback and draft this quarterback, what about um, what about Kyle Allen, the quarterback that we had who uh, broke his? I guess he broke his ankle. That was our backup. For for Alex Smith, is he going to be back in the fold next season? Is his injury going to be decent enough? And we're going to have to sign him because as of right now, the only quarterback that we have on our roster for 2021 is Alex Smith. So we're going to have to do something. Draft free agents. What free agencies out there? What what free agents are we going to get? Are we going to get Jameis Winston? Are we going to get Ryan Fitzpatrick? Are we going to just stick with uh, Alex Smith? Are we just going to have Alex Smith and Ryan Fitzpatrick as our quarterbacks? Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, uh, Tyrod Taylor. Who? Who? Do we have the draft capital or do we have any type of capital to maybe go out and make a trade for a Matthew Stafford or to get ourselves a Matthew Stafford? Are we going to settle with an Andy Dalton type? Who knows? Matt Ryan, is he going to be available? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. But it's a quandary that we could have easily rectified and we would have stunk out loud this year and got ourselves in the position to draft a quarterback worth a damn. Reminded me as I was watching that game. For Philadelphia fans who are bitching and moaning and complaining. Hey, look. That number six pick instead of a number nine pick. That might mean the difference between you guys being a really good football team in a couple of years. And just being in the same situation you are right now. Just a little bit better. Because maybe Carson Wentz won't be around. Maybe this cloud. Maybe this dysfunction with Carson Wentz and everything that permeates from it, maybe that'll be gone. So maybe in a couple of years, you'll be a little bit better if you would have won the game and drafted number nine. But still, I mean, this is a, that's a big difference between a number six draft pick and a number nine draft pick. So if you get somebody at number six, which really helps turn your program around, 
which really hurts, helps turn your team around. Are you still going to be bitching and moaning about what Doug Peterson did on a Sunday night three years ago against the Washington football team when he put in some quarterback? You don't even remember what his name is anymore. You probably don't even remember the situation anymore about how bad Jalen Hurts was and the uproar and the just the anger and the venom directed at Doug Peterson for making that move. If you uh, go ahead and draft a player at number six that could turn around your franchise in a couple of years, of course not. Yeah, it stinks now. Yeah, it hurts now. But the possibility could be it could be the best thing for you for an organization. Sometimes the best things that could happen to a professional franchise is negative. It's not always about winning. Sometimes it's about losing. Sometimes you win when you lose. And sometimes your fortunes can turn around big time when you lose more than you win. Watching Chase Young who is, should be, without question, the runaway offensive, uh, excuse me, defensive player of the year, rookie of the year this year, has already become a, a leader of the Washington franchise. He's already being, you know, talked about the LT word, you know, that, that he has an opportunity to be in that category if he really maximizes his potential. But this is a guy who's going to be a game changer. This is a guy who has the potential to win multiple Defensive Player of the Year awards. This is a guy who could be one of the better defenders in the NFL for years and years to come. I think he could be better than Nick Bosa and Joey Bosa. I mean, hell, at least he can stay injury-free enough. We've seen the injury problems with the Bosas. This guy could be the top edge rusher in the league for years. And as I'm watching all this, and the way that he's anchored this defensive front with Montez Sweat and Jonathan Allen and such... And I'm watching these guys play, and I'm watching Chase Young play. It reminds me of a Sunday afternoon, December 22nd of 2019. It was week 16 of the NFL season, and with the game between the Washington Snyderskins and the New York Giants when fans were still allowed in the stadium and at the uh, stadium for Washington, it was mainly overrun with Giants fans because of the apathy and the lack of caring that the Washington fans showed toward Daniel Snyder and, and the and the product that was being placed on the field for a first time in my lifetime, that there was just complete apathy toward the uh, Washington football squad. We were, at the time, 3-11. and We weren't going anywhere. We were a joke of an organization. Dwayne Haskins looked promising but had a long way to go. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. The only light at the end of the tunnel was another train coming down to mow us over just looked helpless. It just looked hopeless. So I'm watching this game, and I'm one of these guys who are sitting there going, man, God, if we could get past this game, if we can lose this game, we would have the inside track to the number two pick in the draft. Holy freaking yeah. Oh, fucking yeah. It was weak. We were 14 games in. We lose this game. We're 3-12. and 12. In all likelihood, we'll lose the next game, 3-13. and 13. This is our last opportunity to win a game because... As I mentioned before, New York was also 3-11. So whoever won this game would have won the position to uh, have the number two pick. And with Daniel Jones at the quarterback for the New York Giants, the Bengals were going to select Joe Burrow out of LSU. This was the Chase Young Bowl. Whoever lost this game was going to select Chase Young. So I'm watching this game with all of the angst and all of the worry of watching a team playing for real, like trying to win a game. Except my emotions were, come on, man, let's lose, let's lose. Come on, New York, let's go. 
Come on, Saquon. Let's run this ball, baby. I need my team to lose today. Let's go. This is the Chase Young Bowl. We lose this game. We get ourselves Chase Young. Let's do this. Let's lose. Let's go out there and get blown out. Well, Washington scored a touchdown on a 98-yard drive. Case Keenum led the way. On a 98-yard drive, the score, the tie to score at 35 with 30 seconds left to go in the fourth quarter. God damn it! Fuck! Oh, come on, New York. What the fuck are you doing? God damn it. He's going to make the extra point, didn't he? Oh, shit. Tied at 35. Overtime. Oh, man. We're going to lose. We're going to win this fucking game. We're going to win this game, and we're going to lose the opportunity to trash Chase Young. You motherfucker. So that was the attitude that I had. Well, in overtime... On third down and on, on third down and goal, before 19 left to go in overtime, Daniel Jones threw his fifth touchdown pass of the game, and Washington lost one, 31-35. You would have thought, watching this game on the Red Zone Channel in my humble town home on the northwest side of Las Vegas, Nevada, you would have thought that the Washington football team had won the Super Bowl and Daniel Snyder announcing that he's no longer the owner of the Washington football team. That's how happy, that's how ecstatic, that's how enthusiastic I was when Washington lost that game. I was so happy. Yes! Yeah! Yeah, Chase Young! We get ourselves Chase Young! Yeah! 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 I mean, I was like, I was... I was euphoric. I was I was over the moon. Any other cliches of happiness you want me to use? I'll I'll give them to you later. So when I take a look at this game, when I take a look at the Philadelphia Eagles, yeah, you guys might be upset and what are you guys doing and this, that, and the other. Let me tell you something, man. If who was the interim coach at that time? With Bill Callahan, I think, was the interim coach last season after Gruden was fired. I, I don't give a damn if if he called out some female in section 14, row 35 to come down and play quarterback for the Washington football team. I don't give a damn. All I wanted to do was to have the Washington football team lose. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how embarrassing it gets. I don't care. All I want you guys to do is to lose so we can go get ourselves, ourselves a generational talent like Chase Young. That guy was so good, even... A lousy organization like the Washington football team couldn't fuck this up. So I'm watching this game and I'm like, damn it, we're gonna we're gonna win. And because we won the division, our draft is our draft pick is gonna go even lower. And it fell all the way to 19. <laughs> oh, damn, 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 damn. So I think we would have gotten a number 10 pick in the draft that we would have lost. So that's a nine. Uh, that's a ninth uh, difference of nine picks that we lost. Nine. And if you take a look at the uh, draft from last year, we drafted Chase Young, right? Guess who the Giants drafted? Andrew Thomas, offensive tackle from Georgia, who has struggled on the offensive line. So if we would have won that game against the Giants last season, we would have been drafting number three or number four. The Lions drafted Jeff Okuda. Jury's out on him. The Giants drafted Andrew Thomas. Miami drafted Tua Tugavailoa. The Chargers drafted Justin Herbert. The Panthers drafted Derrick Brown, defensive tackle. And the Arizona Cardinals drafted Clemson linebacker Isaiah Thomas, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but a hell of an athlete. 
So if you take a look at that, of all those players that were drafted, the only one that's come close to the impact Young has had on their team and on their franchise has been Herbert. That's it. Everybody else, not even close. So fucking don't tell me not to stop to stop uh, rooting for Washington to lose. Now we might as well just win the whole damn thing if we're going to be in this position. Of course, every time you win in the playoffs, your draft moves down even more. But at 19, what are we going to do? At 19, what are we going to get? Nothing. Again, our biggest position, our biggest weakness on this team is the, friend, is the uh, quarterback. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I blame Alex Smith for this. We were doing fine, man. We were doing just great. Dwayne Haskins was our quarterback. Haskins as our quarterback, damn it, we would have been 2-14 and 14 easily. Or at least, very least, 3-13. and 13. Easily. But oh no, Alex Smith had to come back and be a competent quarterback. Fuck! Now look at us. Now look at us. In the playoffs, division division champions, uh, champions of the uh, NFC least, whoop-de-fucking-damn-do. Again, from a player's standpoint, I get it. I understand it. I, I understand it. So this is not an indictment. I'm not you know, pointing my anger at any of the players or the coaches. They did the right thing. They absolutely did the right thing. But from a, a fan's uh, standpoint, I see Trevor Lawrence. I see Justin Fields. I see Zach Wilson. <sighs> I see them on, on other teams. And I see next season a really good defense. Washington formulating a really good defense. I don't know what we're going to do with the 19th pick. We need some offensive linemen. We need a running back. We need a we need a, a wide receiver. We need a tight end. There's a lot of stuff we need. And, and, and again, you're right. It's not like we get Justin Fields, then number two with our two and fourteen record, and the next season we're, you know, we're going to be, you know, playing for the championship. I, I understand that. I get that. But man, what a, what an opportunity lost by us winning and continuing to win. So. I blame Alex Smith and Ron Rivera for this. I mean, Ron Rivera looks like we got ourselves a coach. We got our, finally got ourselves a, a solid, solid coach to uh, lead the way. And Del Rio has done some really good things with the defense. So I'm pleased with the I'm pleased with the structure of the team. Like those motherfucker cares what I what I think, right? But I mean, Ron Rivera is the coach. Good. All right. There's hope. Jack Del Rio running the defense. Good. There's hope. And the offensive coordinator, good, there's hope. Terry McLaurin, wide receiver, good, there's hope. But man, to tie it all together, a quarterback really would have been nice. But no, we had to uh, go ahead and win some games. We'll see the ramifications of that down the road. I hope they're not too dire.
never missing a beat, yeah. Boy, was it neat, yeah. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, motoring down, speaking about what's going down in the world of sports, speaking mainly about the NFL and the Wild card weekend that's coming up. Three games on Saturday, three games on Sunday. Georgetown plays on Saturday. We got a lot of things I want to do, a lot of sports I want to watch. College basketball in full swing, NBA in full swing. I want to talk even on my next podcast about Ryan Garcia, the savior of boxing. Saw this kid fight, 22 years old. Saw him fight on Saturday. No, on Friday. Yeah, Saturday on the zone. Beat Luke Campbell with a body shot. A body shot. Put him down. He got uh, knocked to the ground, got up in the second round, went back to work. And uh, this kid is awesome, man. This kid is really, really good. And he's already had a pretty strong following. And uh, Chris Mannix was talking about he could be the most important fighter of this century. So, you know, he could be this generation's Oscar De La Hoya and all these other type of things. And I believe him. I believe him in terms of what he could do to uh, help the sport of boxing, which needs some superstars, which needs some real superstars. Because when boxing's going great, when boxing is at its zenith, when boxing puts it out there in terms of fighters fighting other fighters, uh, boxing is one great sport. It's a wonderful sport to watch. So Ryan Garcia, my thoughts and opinions about this young man on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast coming soon. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But back to what's happening. Wild card scheduled for next weekend. So we're speaking January 9th on Saturday. Indianapolis is going to be at Buffalo. That's a 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time game that's going to be shown on CBS. The Los Angeles Rams will be playing the Seattle Seahawks 440 Eastern Standard Time on Fox. And then the nightcap will be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus my Washington Snyderskins, 8.15 Eastern Standard Time on NBC. How about that? Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth gets, call, gets to call two Washington football games in two weeks. Wonderful. Then Sunday, January 10th, starting off, we'll have the Baltimore Ravens versus the Tennessee Titans, 105 Eastern Standard Time on ABC yes, ESPN. The Chicago Bulls, Chicago Bulls, the Chicago, I'm watching basketball, so, you know, excuse me. The Chicago Bears will be playing the New Orleans Saints, 440 Eastern Standard Time. That's going to be on CBS. The Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, that rematch will be the nightcap, the final game of Wild Card Weekend. That'll be at 815 Eastern Standard Time on NBC. So, some good matchups. Teams I think are playing well. I mean, you have to go, of course, with the Buffalo Bills, 13-3, and won the AFC East for the first time in 25 years, playing the best football in the league right now. I know an argument can be made with Green Bay, but they're playing the best football in the league right now with the second-best QB of the game currently behind Aaron Rodgers, the way that he's playing right now. Patrick Mahomes taking the final games off, so I'm going to have to go in terms of who's playing better right now, right now. Playing football better right now is going to be Josh Allen. The only quarterback playing better from that position is Aaron Rodgers. The Bills have won nine of their last ten games after losing to Kansas City 26-17 in week six of the season. And their only loss in, loss in their last ten games has been a Hail Murray pass on the last play of the game against Arizona week 11, if you remember. Murray to DeAndre Hopkins, one of the 
highlights of the NFL season. So, look, man, they're beating the fishtails off. They beat the fishtails off the Miami Dolphins in a meaningless football game for them, for the Bulls. It meant something for the Dolphins, but not for the Bills. But they beat the living hell out of those guys, 56-26. to 26, And they've been doing that, man. The starters only played the first half. Past 10 games, they've just been mashing people. They've led the league in scoring at almost 31 points a game. They put up 44 points against Seattle, 34 points against San Francisco, 26 against Pittsburgh. They beat the Denver Broncos 48-19. to And they old yellowed the remaining pieces of the New England Patriots dynasty and Cam Newton's relevance as the starting quarterback in the NFL with a beatdown on Monday Night Football two weeks ago. So the Bills have been bad, bad Leroy Brown for the NFL for the past 10 weeks. Josh Allen has had the third best season by a QB so far in 2020. It's arm talent. I think it's arm talent, if you think about it. It's the closest thing to Mahomes and Rodgers in the league. I'm not saying they're on the same level, but I'm just saying in terms of just making plays with their arms. Is there anybody outside of Mahomes or Rodgers who can do it with the talent of a Josh Allen? He's basically... This season, it's miraculous because accuracy had already always been his problem, whether it was at Wyoming, first couple of years in the NFL with the Bills. No one saw this coming. How do you go from being a career 56-57 completion percentage rated passer to now almost going to 70%? And he's not dinking and dunking. He's not Alex Smithing his way to uh, that percentage. I mean, he's throwing passes that are just, I mean, what what can we say? It's just like, fuck you, I'm getting it through. It's like Joe Namath. It's like, like Dan Olosky said, it's arm arrogance. I know it's a small window. I know it's a situation where most quarterbacks can't throw it. But, you know, he's got that Brett Favre type of arrogance to say, I'm going to throw it anyway. And if I get intercepted, I get intercepted. If not, I'm going to go back and try it again. And this year, he hasn't gotten intercepted like... Uh, so he, he, he's been incredible. He's playing like this generation's Ben Roethlisberger or Cam Newton. Big, strong guy, athletic guy. If you remember Roethlisberger and Cam and their physical prime, the fact that how defenders used to bounce off of them, the way that they would be able to uh, to uh, keep a play going because of their athleticism, because of their elusiveness, the, the, the plays they used to make because of their arm talent, because of the strength of their arm. If Roethlisberger and Cam Newton were 21, 22, 23 years old, they would be playing similar to Josh Allen in terms of what he's doing. So for Buffalo, he set a single-season franchise record for touchdown passes, 37 completions, 396 passing yards, over 4,500, while running for eight scores. If this guy behind Rodgers and Mahomes, yeah, he's third in the league in MVP. Now, if you want to equate some of the other players that play other positions, if you want to start ranking who's the best player, I mean, you got to throw in Aaron Donald, you got to throw in Jalen Ramsey, you got to throw in a couple of offensive linemen, you got to throw in those guys. But in terms of what, top seven, top eight for the 2020 season, hell yeah, you got to put in Josh Allen. You got to put away up there. So the question is going to be, of course. Because I think they're going to get by Indianapolis. I don't think they're going to get by. I think they're going to beat them pretty handily. Everybody's talking about, well, we don't know what happened. If you remember, they were up 16 to nothing last uh, season in the playoffs against Houston. And we saw what happens. Big difference between last year and this year. Last uh, season, Josh Allen looked like a deer in headlights. 
during the crunch time moments of those games. I'm gonna go out on a limb. I'm going to make a, I'm gonna make an ass out of you and me and assume that that's not gonna be happening with a more mature and much more confident Josh Allen playing the quarterback position. So moving forward, of course, the question now, the hot topic in terms of discussing what's happening in the playoffs is, is can they beat the defending champions from Kansas City? Because as I mentioned before, KC 23-1 in the last 24 games, not counting the loss this past Sunday against the LA Chargers when most of their starters didn't play. And, and also, hey, you also have to remember this. Patrick Mahomes is undefeated in regulation in the playoffs. How about that, huh? His only loss came in overtime to Tom Brady in uh, New England. Other than that, unblemished in his, uh, in his uh, playoff uh, regular season. But uh, I, I think in this situation, look, the Bills have the offense to keep up with Kansas City. Now, if Mahomes starts wheeling and dealing and doing a thing, eventually... I think if he reaches that level, nobody, I mean nobody, and I mean nobody, and I mean nobody is going to be able to uh, keep up with Kansas City in that regard. But this is a team in Kansas City that's going to be coming off a week by. I'm not saying that they're going to be playing Buffalo in the first game out, of course, but if they're going to be reaching the AFC Championship game, you know, Buffalo's rolling. Buffalo's got that momentum, and the more that they keep playing and the more that they keep winning, that momentum, that confidence is going to go stronger, stronger, stronger. And I think the fact that you have uh, Patrick Mahomes, you have other starters that didn't play against the Chargers, then they have a week off this uh, playoff period before they come back. So that's two weeks off. So there's going to be some rust that the uh, that Kansas City is going to have to deal with. So how much of that rust can they shake off by the time, if the inevitable happens, they go ahead and they play Buffalo in the AFC Championship, if that's going to be the deal? If that offense is going to be humming, is going to be pruning at the level to where they're going to be playing a Buffalo team that's going to be mowing and grooving and doing their thing. Are they going to be able to summon the prowess to keep up with Buffalo? Is it going to be a case in point that Kansas City is going to have to keep up with Buffalo as far as points being scored instead of Buffalo being able to keep up with Kansas City in the points department. We talked about the dominance that uh, Josh Allen had this year. Well, Stephon Diggs, he's led the league in receptions with 127 and yards receiving over 1,500. And interesting note, when they played Kansas City, Buffalo back in week six, it wasn't Patrick Mahomes that did it, man. And it wasn't a game where... Kansas City won 42 to 38 or, you know, or uh, or 55 to 49, some, some nonsense like that. It didn't resemble a Big 12 football game between Texas Tech and, um, Texas Tech and uh, Kansas. This was a situation where, look, Kansas City won the game. Are you looking? Pay attention. Kansas City won the game, and basically it was because of their run game. KC ran the ball 46 times. For 224 yards, threw it only 26 times for 225 yards. Mahomes was good, 21 of 26, 225, two touchdowns, no interceptions. But this was a situation, this was a very un-Kansas City-like performance in terms of, you know, we think of Kansas City and we think of the Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball all over the field and Tyreek Hill doing the thing and Kelsey at the tight end position and, yeah, the... Running game is just kind of like the icing of the on the cake, and these guys are you know throwing a long pass and all these type of things and putting up points and moving the ball down the field through the air. 
Well, no, in this game, it was the complete opposite. Sean McDermott, the head coach for Buffalo, was like, we're not going to have Patrick Mahomes throw for 400 yards and five touchdowns. We're going to make them win another way. And guess what they did? They won with rushing the ball, and they ran, and they uh, won with defense. Because if you take a look at the defense for Kansas City, Josh Allen had his worst game of the season that game against the defending champions. Allen went 14-27 for 122 yards. Yeah, he had, a, he had two touchdowns, but he also had an interception, but he was just off that game. So moving forward again, there's been a lot. I mean, you know, again, there's a lot of different things, just like when we talked about with Cleveland and Pittsburgh, the way Pittsburgh did the um, Browns like they did earlier in the season, that now is an entirely different team in Pittsburgh and in Cleveland, which makes it, which makes for a much better playoff game, I think, on Sunday. Well, I think it's the same thing if if the Kansas City football team meets the Buffalo Bills at Arrowhead. So we'll be thinking about that. We'll be talking about that moving on during the playoffs. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Baltimore Ravens, I think it's another team that's playing his best football of the season. They've won their last five games after losing to Pittsburgh 19-14 in a game that was postponed twice and played on a weekday afternoon because of COVID-related issues with the team. Lamar Jackson didn't play. J.K. Dobbins didn't play. After the last time, maybe we'll see RG3 as a starting quarterback anywhere in terms of starting a football game unless it's week 17 and the team stinks or the team is going into the playoffs. But since Jackson returned to play quarterback, the team has averaged 37 points a game. They put a 34-17 whooping on Dallas. Then they had that wonderful comeback on Monday Night Football against Cleveland, 47-42, where Jackson got sick, went into the locker room, came back on the field late in the game, led the team down to a uh, touchdown and a field goal, the game-winning field goal. Jacksonville, they beat 40-14. to They beat the New York Giants, who have a pretty strong defense, 27-13. to And then this past Sunday, they pummeled the Cincinnati Bungles, 38-3. So, you take a look at the combined records of Dallas, Jacksonville, Cincinnati, and the Giants, leaving leaving Cleveland out of this equation. They're not beating the best of the best. Okay, they're, they're not beating the champs of the champ. They're 17-47-1 if you take the combined records of Dallas, Jacksonville, Cincinnati, and the NYGs. So, but still, you, you have to, again, be impressed by what the Ravens are doing. Against Cincinnati, they rushed for 404 yards, which is the fourth most by a team since 1950. If you want to put that into context, against Cincinnati, Baltimore rushed for 404 yards. The Steelers have rushed for 329 yards since Thanksgiving. And in the playoffs, if you're going to have an immobile quarterback, you better be able to run the football one and four going into the playoffs once again not buying the Pittsburgh Steelers at all, especially if you're speaking about the way the Baltimore Ravens are rolling, not only on offense, but also on defense, but especially on offense. Lamar Jackson becoming the first quarterback to record multiple 1,000-yard rushing seasons, finished the season throwing for 2,700 yards, 26 touchdowns, nine interceptions. I know it wasn't the explosion that... The, uh, that Lamar Jackson had last season in terms of the impact that he had, not just on his team, but also on the league. But um, he rounded off. He, he came down to the medium of uh, being a pretty good quarterback if you think about the fact that he accounted for almost 4,000 yards rushing and passing. So 
And again, 26 to 9, touchdown to interception ratio, that's great. The emphasis is for Baltimore is balance on offense, which means emphasizing the run. Baltimore has to run the ball in terms of them being super successful. You can't have Lamar Jackson throwing the ball 40 to 45 times. Not going to happen for Baltimore if you want to win uh, in the playoffs. You're not going to beat Tennessee that way. Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, from a passing standpoint, the huge advantage goes to Lamar Jackson. But the overall, it's a much better fight. It's a much more competitive fight. If the Ravens are running the football, if Lamar is being able to run the football, if J.K. Dobbins is able to run the football. If you take a look during the five-game stretch, the winning stretch for the Ravens, they averaged 20 pass attempts a game for only 169 yards. That's something that the Bills, and that's something that the Packers, that's something that the uh, Kansas City team would probably do in a half. But the running game, on the other hand, during the five-game winning streak, they're averaging 40 carries a game for an average of 260 yards or 267 yards per game. That's 1980 Nebraska wishbone nonsense. That's like Oklahoma running the wishbone. That's, that's some serious running right there. So they play at Tennessee. Again, this might be playing Tennessee, if you think about it, for Baltimore. Tennessee might be the only team that can out-Baltimore Baltimore. They're just speaking about the two top rushing teams in the league. Now look, from the quarterback position in this matchup between Ryan Tannehill and Lamar Jackson, hey, we're speaking about the totality of what a quarterback is, the running, the passing, and everything. I think Lamar has the edge on Tannehill. But when you have that big, strong running back, Henry, uh, Derek Henry, the way that he's running, and if he's going and he's doing his thing, and that play-action pass is, is, um, is working off of that, you have big, strong receivers for Tennessee that can make it easier for Ryan Tannehill to do his thing. Both of these teams are predicated on, their success is predicated on running the football on offense. So if Derrick Henry is running the football, that makes the play-action pass that much more dangerous. And I think that Tennessee in this game against Baltimore has a better set of wide receivers than the Ravens. But just from an an improv position for the Baltimore Ravens, you have to go with the quarterback being Lamar Jackson over Tannehill in this situation. Passing the ball, if they have to get into a passing situation where both quarterbacks are going to be throwing the ball over 35, 40 times. I like Ryan Tannehill, not just because I think that he is a better thrower than Lamar Jackson at this stage of his career, but also because of the weapons that he has from the from the tight end position. Yeah, Mark Andrews, much better in that position than Tennessee and Ryan Tannehill. But from the wide receivers position, just the versatility, the number of receivers that can hurt you, I think in that situation, the edge goes to... Tannehill and the Tennessee Titans. So they've already met a couple of times. They met what? Once during the year? Tennessee won in regulation. I think it was week 11, 30 to 24 in overtime. In that game, the Ravens uh, were out, out gained. One of the few times that the uh, Ravens were outrushed by a team. Tennessee had 173 yards compared to 129 for Baltimore. Tennessee won the battle of, of the yard per carry. If you're speaking about five yards per carry compared to 3.9 for the Ravens during that game, Henry scored the Derrick Henry scored the game-winning touchdown. Yeah, how much did he have? I know that he had like 130 something yards, 135 yards in the game against the uh, Ravens. So, well, it'll be key to um, 
stop that, uh, stop Derrick Henry. And as I mentioned before, it is a chore because it's more than just tackling and and holding him to two yards and three yards. It's just the totality of dealing with tackling Derrick Henry throughout the game. So it doesn't matter. His first five carries can be two yards, three yards, minus one yard, one yard, and three yards. It's not like, oh, well, they stopped Derrick Henry. Let's go ahead and let's start passing the ball. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter because Derrick Henry, the first 10 times he might get the ball, he might only average two and a half, three, three and a half yards per carry. But the totality of tackling that guy, of having to tackle that guy and to do it for, I don't know, 40, 50 plays, sooner or later, it's going to wear off on you. Sooner or later cornerbacks and safeties and linebackers are going to get tired of tackling that guy. So the impact of Derrick Henry might not be felt on rushes 1 through 13, 14, 15, but when you start getting into rushing in attempts 18, 20, 25, 30, uh, that's when it's kind of like, nah, man, I'm done. I'm done. I'm making a business decision here because you know what? I want to live to be at least 70. I want to be able to walk around on knees that aren't arthritic. You know, I don't, I don't want to have my shoulders hurting. I don't want to be waking up any more in the morning when I'm 50, 60 years old in more pain than I'm already going to be. So, nah, me coming, coming up and colliding with this guy another 10 times, not down with it. Or I'm not going to have the same fervor or passion or enthusiasm that I had when this game first started. So that is the impact of Derrick Henry, just having to deal with this guy. And for defenses, I mean, you try to tackle A.J. Brown, you try to tackle Walker, you try to tackle any of these guys. It's like getting hit by a two-by-four. And just a steady beatdown, not just from the running backs, but just from all the skill positions. So that's that's the deal with Tennessee. Their defense has been underwhelming this year. But again, we're speaking about two teams that need to jump out early. Because if Baltimore can get ahead 14-0, if Tennessee can get ahead early in the game 14-0, something like that, then it mitigates some of the effectiveness that the running game is going to have because sooner or later, you're going to have to start putting the ball in the air. If you remember last year in the playoffs, that's what happened when the Titans came to uh, Ravens Stadium and played Baltimore. Tennessee got out to a big lead. Lamar Jackson had had to start throwing the ball all over the field having the pass attempts go up and up and up. I think he finished the game with over 40 passing attempts during the game. That's not Baltimore football. That's that's not going to work. So for this game, I think it's going to be one of the more compelling and, and a close game. This is a field goal game. This is an overtime game. This is a down-to-the-wire game. But I think if Baltimore can survive Tennessee... I think that they have the running game that could give the defending champions from Kansas City a little bit of a problem. And we're also looking at a situation where you know, the, the, the pressure, warranted or unwarranted, is going to be on Lamar Jackson because this is a guy who hasn't won yet in the playoffs. Lost his, in his rookie year to the L.A. Chargers and then lost uh, last year to the Tennessee Titans. I think the bigger indictment for Lamar was losing to Tennessee, if you remember last season, the Ravens were 14-2, and two and they were rolling, they were doing this, that, and the other, and, you know, they were beaten pretty handily by the Titans. The first season, I mean, he's a rookie playing against the uh, Chargers, kind of predictable in a way, but going ahead and losing, if he goes ahead and loses to Tennessee, and look, this is only going to be a third playoff game, I'm not saying that, you know, me personally, 
I'm not saying that there needs to be concern and all this kind of stuff, but you know the talking heads and you know the discussion points will be made. The fact that once again he lost in the playoffs and when you take a look at some of the upper echelon teams that he's faced throughout his career, if you're speaking about Pittsburgh, if you're speaking about Kansas City, New England, where they were rolling, he has not been successful in any of those games. So the narrative might be, is Lamar Jackson a sunshine soldier? I don't think so, but that'll be out there if he doesn't perform well. And when I say perform well, it's also predicated on how the team does. Because I don't think Lamar Jackson was the main reason Baltimore lost last season to Tennessee, just like I don't think Lamar was the reason why he was the main culprit on the in, in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers a couple of seasons ago. But when the quarterback is out there and when you're Lamar Jackson and you've had the seasons that you've had polarizing, you're either going to get too much of the credit or too much of the blame. So that's just the way it is when you're that talented, that accomplished so early in your career playing the position that you're, that you're playing. It just comes with the territory. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's going down in terms of the playoffs are concerned. Uh, let me see. Tampa Bay Buccaneers. How about them? End of the season on a four-game winning streak. Speaking about teams that are hot. hot. is averaging 35 points per game over the last seven. Tom Brady's been playing like an elite quarterback again. One of five in the last, in his five of his last seven games, he's thrown for at least 340 yards. And in that span, he has a 20 to 5 touchdown and interception ratio. Now, of course, let's take a look and devil's in the details. Let's peel back the, let's peel back the uh, platitudes here. The winning streak came against opponents with 16 combined wins. If you're taking a look at beating the Falcons twice, Minnesota beating the Lions who didn't want anything to do with the Buccaneers, didn't want to have anything to do with playing football that day. They were thoroughly embarrassed by the uh, Buccaneers. So, okay, might be a situation where, hey, you know what? You played the Lions, you played the Vikings, you played the Falcons. Those teams are giving up our 32nd, 28th, and 29th respectively in points per game in the NFL, giving up points per game in the NFL. And then when you flip the script, the Buccaneers finished the year 1-5 against teams with winning record and were outscored in those games, 146-93. to If you remember the debacle, which was the Sunday night game against the Atlanta Falcons, yikes. But, you know what? Hey, even though all of that stuff went down and Mike Evans is listed this day-to-day, there's no structural damage on that knee that he injured on Sunday against the uh, Falcons. Hey, man. Tom Brady is still Tom Brady. And I told you, I told you that for the first year, even at 43 years old, expect to have Tom, expect Tom Brady to have a good year, which he's had a little up and down, of course, but the man is 43 years old. He's not the Tom Brady that we all grew up with, or you grew up with, or your son grew up with, or your daughter grew up with, or your wife or your husband grew up with. But what I'm saying is he's still a very effective quarterback, especially when you're speaking about the return of Rob Gronkowski. And while he's not the Gronk of old, he showed flashes of what uh, he could do when he was uh, when he was the man. We'll see if we can get that guy in the playoffs. We're speaking about uh, Mike Evans, even if he is 75-80%, you know he's going to get out there and he'll be effective. You're taking a look at a Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown might have to pick up the slack a little bit if 
Evans is not going to be the Evans that we all know and love, but he is a weapon that's been in sync with Tom Brady and that relationship as far as receiver quarterback on the field has gotten better week in and week out. So even though they've uh, laid an egg, shall we say, against some of the better teams, again, let's take a look at what's going down as of right now. And you take a look at what some of the teams that they lost to, like, for instance, the uh, Los Angeles Rams, one of the teams that they lost to that had a winning record. Well, they don't have their starting quarterback, Jared Goff. And they've been kind of uh, putt-putt-putting, not roar-roar-roaring into the playoffs. So you have to take that into account. You take a look at New Orleans, a team that embarrassed, as I mentioned before, on Sunday Night Football. They embarrassed Tampa Bay at Tampa Bay. Well, Drew Brees is not the same quarterback that uh, he was against the Buccaneers. And uh, Alvin Kamara just coming off the COVID list uh, because he caught the virus. We don't know what impact that's going to have. So everything is everything is, is a lot different, even though, again, a situation where the Buccaneers would play the Saints on the road, you take a look at someone like a Green Bay who they mauled Probably their best game of the year, if you think about it, the way they beat up on the um, on the Packers during that day. Well, the rematch would be for the, uh, I don't know if it would be for the uh, NFC Championship. I would have to check. But anywhere, anyway, if they play the Packers, that was going to be on, that's going to be in Lambeau Field, which is probably going to be a primetime game, which it probably means it's going to be at night, which probably means the temperature in Green Bay will be under 32 degrees. Now, Brady playing in New England. He's used to that kind of weather. That's not going to be a big deal. But what about the other teammates that he has? You know, so we'll see. We'll see. So for the success moving into the playoffs, look, Tampa Bay is going to have to kind of push some of the responsibilities off of Brady's shoulders and, let, and get that running game going. Here's a man where you're going to be facing the, the Washington football team. You're going to be facing New Orleans. You might face the Rams. All of those guys have, all of those teams have strong front fours. Against those teams, I do not advise Bruce Arians and Brian Orlefwich, like I know anything about offensive football compared to those guys, right? But it would behoove those guys not to have Tom Brady step back there and throw the ball 45, 50 times a game or 40 times a game, which he's had propensity to do so far this year with um, Tampa Bay. When you're facing a Chase Young or when you're facing some of these defensive fronts, you might have the possibility of facing an Aaron Donald or, or the front four from New Orleans. I would suggest that you have some type of running game to offset some of the, put the head down and just try to get to the quarterback. Tom Brady is not Lamar Jackson. Tom Brady is not Russell Wilson. Tom Brady is not the most mobile quarterback of them all. So if you see where Tom Brady plants himself, more than likely he's going to be there or he's going to step up right into you. So Green Bay has been playing at another level, defense is concerned, and the weather is not going to be advantageous for Tampa Bay to be throwing the ball all over the yard. So look, Tampa Bay ranks sixth in the league in passing attempts, 26 in rushing attempts. You can't have that disparity in the playoffs. Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette need to have a 100-yard rushing day. Somewhere in these playoffs, the Buccaneers need to run the ball at least for 150 yards, at least. If that means Jones gets 100, Fournette gets 50. If that means that Fournette gets 125 and Jones gets one, gets uh, 25, it doesn't matter. 
But somewhere, somewhere down the line, if the Pampered Bay wants to move forward with this, the passing to rushing ratio has to be more evened out. Jones has had four games during the regular season in which he's had 100 yards. Fournette has had one. One of those guys is going to have to break the 100-yard barrier. And Tampa Bay, as an offense, has to, has to, must run for over 100 yards as a team. Has to. That's the only thing that could, uh, that would be the best situation for, that would be the best situation for Tampa Bay moving forward. So, look, man, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of things happening, man. I mean, you're taking a look at the New Orleans Saints. They play Chicago on Sunday. This is a situation where this could be Drew Brees' last game at the end of the season. Adam Schefter is reporting that everybody expects this is the, that Drew Brees is going to retire at the end of the season. He said that uh, they thought that last year, they thought that last year in terms of him retiring, and he surprised them in March by deciding to come back. This time he got a signed contract with NBC. This time he's another year older. This time he's played through the 11 fractured ribs, the punctured lung. It's been a difficult physical season, and I think most people still believe that this will be the final season for Drew Brees in New Orleans and in the NFL before he turns to the broadcast booth. Played well against Carolina in his last regular season game, if this is the case, 22 of 32, 201 yards and three touchdowns. Again, they'll be with Alvin Kamara. I don't know how strong. I don't know uh, what type of Alvin Kamara we're going to be getting after landing on the COVID reserve list on Friday the week before. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see the journey that the Saints are going to start. Again, this team has been one of the elite teams in the NFL, but whether it's a bad call in the NFC Championship game, whether it's a Hail Mary in the half against the Minnesota Vikings a few years ago, if it's losing at home to Kurt Cousins in overtime in their playoffs, if it's, it's there's just something boogeyman-ish which is always happening to the New Orleans Saints. Well, this is going to be their last chance with this team, and it, it would be nice if Michael Thomas could show up and be the Michael Thomas that was the top wide receiver in the game last year. So that'll be the Chicago Bears and the New Orleans Saints. The playoffs this season, the playoffs this year, yeah, man, it's looking good. It's looking real interesting this weekend. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, descending to the end of what's happening in terms of this podcast. Remember, I will be putting out another podcast very shortly, talking about what's happening in the NBA, talking about, hey, congratulations to Devonta Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner, wide receiver from Alabama, congratulations. Trevor Lawrence, though, is sitting back going, that's fine, yeah, you take that Heisman Trophy, guess who's going to be number one pick in the draft and who's going to be making that money? Thank you. Yeah, you can't buy a uh, car with that Heisman Trophy. You can't put that as a down payment on the mansion, that Heisman Trophy. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, congrats. I would much rather be the number one pick than the Heisman Trophy winner, but both of those guys are going to be uh, generationally wealthy. So, hey, man, you know, 
if you end your life with 50 million instead of 45 million, what's the difference of 5 million, right? You can't take it with you, whether you're going to hell or whether you're going to heaven. So it doesn't matter. So congratulations to Devonta Smith winning the Heisman Trophy, but I'll be speaking about on my next podcast, not only the NBA, not only my Georgetown Hoyas, not only Ryan Garcia, the savior of boxing, possibly the next crossover superstar in the sport, but also going to be talking about the college football playoffs, the Ohio State against Alabama. Should be interesting. But to uh, end off this bad boy, so I can go ahead and finish watching these NBA games and watch Chop on the Food Network channel, not the commercials, let me go ahead and talk about some of the firings and hirings or potential hirings that's going on. The shocking news here, Jacksonville firing head coach Doug Marone after five seasons, had a record of 23-43. and They say that Jacksonville is the best job Maybe outside of the uh, L.A. Chargers because of Justin Herbert and some of the uh, young talent that they have, a Derwin James, a Joey Bosa, uh, Keaton Allen. He's not what I would consider young, but he's still in his prime. And the fact that we're speaking about an L.A. market. But uh, outside of maybe that, they say Jacksonville, man, is the best job opening. You've got 11 draft picks, including the number one pick, which is going to be a generational great quarterback potentially in Trevor Lawrence. You got $78 million in cap space. So that's a situation, a job. You think 1-15, in 15, a team in Jacksonville that after going 11-5 in 2017, they've gone 12-36 and 36 their other three seasons since, and they finished last each time in that division. How in the world is that job going to be attractive? Well, when you get Trevor Lawrence, you've got a couple of uh, decent receivers that are young. When you've got Miles Jacks on the defensive side, if you – Go ahead, and as I mentioned before, the cap space and the draft picks. I mean, that's a situation where you can build a pretty nice uh, team in your vision and do it pretty quickly in terms of three or four years to get those guys to rocket and rolling. So, yeah, I can see Jacksonville. And we're speaking about Florida, no state tax. So it uh, helps with the uh, pocketbook also. So, yeah, I can see a situation like that. Now, the leading candidate for the job, is former Ohio State and University of Florida football coach Urban Meyer. Now, according to uh, PFT, Pro Football Today, Meyer is looking for somewhere somewhere around $12 million per year to coach that team. I would tell him on no uncertain terms to fuck off if he's asking for $12 million a year. Get the hell out of here. Number one, if he's going to be a coach, He's going to be a coach. We're not, we're not, this is not a situation where he's going to have a hand in player personnel and drafting and all this kind of stuff. Urban Meyer should only be a coach and coach only, especially for a guy who's never coached in the league before. So that's number one. So you could maybe justify John Gruden is getting $100 million for 10 years. I don't know, was he, what, year three or four into the contract? So basically for a dual job or at least helping along with um, Mike Mayock that this guy is going to be making 100 mil over 10 years. I don't know how much Bill Belichick is making, but I don't think it's anywhere around $12 million. So if Bill Belichick is not making that money, then why in the hell are you going to have Urban Meyer make that type of money? I don't think so. If I'm Jacksonville, man, if I've got a situation like this, why in the hell would I go after an unproven guy anyway? I've got myself an opportunity. No, not an opportunity. I'm going to get myself Trevor Lawrence. I'm going to go out and get myself a guy like an Eric Bieniemy. I'm going to go out and get myself like a, the offensive coordinator from um, Tennessee. I'm going to go ahead and get the offensive coordinator, Brian Dable from Buffalo. That's the type of guy I'm going to get. If I'm going to go ahead and uh, 
do the hiring process or be the guy in Jacksonville to uh, hire the next head coach. I want a guy who's going to be able to, A, connect with the locker room, and B, be able to have the offensive scheme and system and intelligence and and and, and, and talent to go ahead and take this gem, this lottery ticket that I've got, which is Trevor Lawrence, and uh, see what I can do with him. And we always concentrate like, you know, a quarterback coach or something like that. The reason why I, I emphasize not only just being a quarterback coach or being a quarterback guru or someone who's a strong offensive mind, look, for the most part, yeah, you're going to have a situation or you're going to have an offensive philosophy which you're going to implement on your football team if you're the head coach. But for the most part, you're going to have an offensive coordinator. So even if a Dable or a enemy or one of these guys, when they become a head coach, they're going for the most part to relinquish their offensive coordinated, coordinated duties because you're going to have an offensive coordinator for that. Now, you might be heavily involved in putting the game plan together and all those type of things, i.e. Kyle Shanahan over in San Francisco, but you're a head coach, man. You're not just an offensive coordinator. You're just not a quarterback coach. A coach, more importantly, is going to have to provide leadership. It's going to have to provide uh sustainability is going to have to provide structure is going to have to provide communications leadership skills those type of things so you could be the greatest quarterback guru of all time but if you don't have the ability to connect and to lead and to instruct and to put together a system that's going to be beneficial to all of the players offense defense special teams offensive line linebackers special teams it really doesn't matter See the New York Jets with Adam Gates, a guy who was like, yeah, you know, Peyton Manning gave the recommendation because, wow, when he was with me, I just loved the way he kind of concentrated on what I was doing. Well, yeah, when you're the offensive coordinator, yeah, you can do that. But you just can't ignore the other parts of the team. And Adam Gates, who I'll get to in a second because he lost his job with the New York Jets, shockingly. But, uh, you know, when Adam Gates decided that, you know what, I'm just going to concentrate on the offense and getting Sam Darnold up to speed and Greg Williams, you can go ahead and do what you want to on a defense. That's not coaching. That's not what a head coach is supposed to do. So, it's uh, you know, as a coach, yeah, if I'm Jacksonville, yeah, I'm looking for, or if I'm the Jets and have the opportunity to either go ahead and continue with Sam Darnold or go ahead and draft a Justin Fields or something like that and develop a quarterback. Yeah, I, I want someone with a little bit of expertise, but that's just the that's just the, the, the first part of it. I need somebody, can he lead? Can he, uh, you know, can, can he connect with a locker room? Can a locker room believe in him? Is he going to be, um, I mean, are the, is the team going to be well-coached? Are they going to be disciplined? Are they going to be put in advantageous situations for those guys to perform well? I mean, is he, is he going to have a, a solid working relationship with the other coordinators on the team? Is he going to be able to lead those guys? Is he going to be good for the franchise? Is he going to be able to uh, be a good face for the franchise when he's not out, when he's not inside the team facilities? All these things go into place. So if, if, if ask the uh, Lions coach, Matt Patricia, the ex-Lions coach, Detroit coach, at those players, what was the main deal with Patricia? Why he didn't succeed in um, in Detroit? No one said that he didn't know what the hell he was doing as far as a, a football mind is concerned. No one questioned his ability to uh, 
be a defensive guy to uh, put defenders in good positions or, or anything like that. No one questioned his acumen to coach a defense. What sunk and what torpedoed and what ended the coaching career of Matt Patricia in Detroit was the fact that he didn't connect with anybody. He wasn't personable with anybody. He didn't uh, make people believe in what he was doing in terms of leadership is concerned. No people skills. So that's... If you're going to get a job in the NFL and move up the ranks, I mean, being able to have a solid foundation in terms of whatever your expertise is in, offense, defense, special teams, running back, whatever, I mean, that's kind of like the bare bones minimum. Hopefully, if you're going to become a head coach in the NFL, that you're going to have some type of baseline in terms of, yeah, I know what I'm doing in my, in my, um, in my role as a football team. What makes uh, an assistant or offensive or, or coordinator and to a really good head coach is his ability to connect with the entire locker room to instill leadership and to have the people skills and the leadership skills to that the large majority of the uh, team believes in you. And even if they don't like you as a human being or as a person, they believe in you in terms of what you're doing in terms of football. So, you know, that's that's the deal. In Urban Meyer, I, I don't I don't know if I'm one of these guys. And Jacksonville's maybe young enough not to really know the difference. But Urban Meyer coming in, I don't, I don't know exactly what he's going to bring. I don't know exactly the, the the system that he ran at Florida, at Bowling Green, at Utah, at Ohio State. That shit ain't going to work in the NFL, and that shit definitely ain't going to work with Trevor Lawrence running it. So I don't know. And we're speaking about a guy in. Urban Meyer, who, you know, doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about NCAA violations, so he's not going to leave your program in ruin because of NCAA violations. But this is a guy who, you know, who's, who's a sprinter, not a jogger, in terms of, yeah, he'll give you four or five really good years at a college situation, but ultimately he's going to burn out. And a 56-year-old guy with, with heart problems, health problems related to stress, from a guy who's won like 80-something percent over 85 or 86 percent of his games, he's not going to be happening in the NFL. You're not, you're not going to be 14-2 and two and 15-1 and one every year, Urban, and competing for the uh, Super Bowl every year. This ain't college. You don't get to go out and get and draft yourself the best uh, wide receiver, quarterback. There is a salary cap. There is a hard salary cap in the NFL, unlike in the SEC where you can go out and you can pie, or, I mean, recruit the best wide receiver and linebacker and defensive end and, wide, and quarterback and all those type of things. You can go ahead and do that. You can go ahead and stack your skill positions with five-star recruits. That doesn't happen in the NFL. And you're not going to have the opportunity in the 16 games that you're going to be playing. Every one of those games, you're either going to be on an even keel in terms of talent-wise, a little bit better or a lot worse. In terms of talent is concerned, there's, there's, there's no, uh, like at Ohio State where you get to play teams from the MAC and you get to play cupcakes four or five times a year, where out of 13 games that you play, 11 of those games, you're just going to be talently, you're just going to have the more, more talent than the other team and you can win half of your games every year just based on talent, just based on getting off the bus because your Jimmy, Jimmy's and Joe's can beat any X's and O's that anybody else puts up there. That's not going to happen in the NFL. Doesn't happen in the NFL. So in his first year, when Meyer is three and nine, 
what is going to be his emotional foundation based on that? So if I'm if I'm uh, the NFL, I leave Urban Meyer alone. And yeah, it would be interesting to see what he would do as a head coach, but no, nah, man, I'm leaving that guy alone. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm going to be ending now. Adam Gaze, no longer the head coach of the New York Jets, 9-23. and um, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't want... There's some black coaches who I think... Who I want to get jobs. I want Marvin Lewis back in the game. I want Eric Bieniemy to get a job. I want Todd Bowles to get serious consideration for jobs. I want um, Leslie Frazier to get serious consideration for jobs. But there's a couple of franchises I don't want those guys going to. The Jets and the Lions. In terms of... Look, man, when you're a black head coach... Um, you don't get the same opportunities as the white coaches do. So, you know, if we're going to, if you're going to uh, get a job and you're black, you got to treat it like this is the one opportunity you have to show that you're an NFL head coach. So if, don't put me in a position. Don't bring me to an organiza- organization that's going to set me up to fail. And the Johnsons, the owner of the New York Jets and the um, Ford family, over in uh, Detroit, they have shown throughout the years that, yeah, they don't have the structure, they don't have the organizational skills to consistently put a winner on the on the field, no matter who's the coach there. And you think about what happened to Jim Caldwell, who still hasn't really gotten a true opportunity to get a job, despite being the most successful coach in a long time in Lions uh, franchise history, just lets you know that, you know what, if you're a black coach, look, there's 32 jobs in the NFL, and you have to be very, you know, you, you have to be very lucky, very fortunate to uh, get one of those jobs. But man, you want to put yourself in a position to where I get a fair shot to uh, succeed at uh, at the head coaching position, because I'm, there's no black Adam Gases out there. There's there's no uh, situations where a black coach has done poorly in his first stint and then getting and then got another job. So if I'm one of these guys who are black, stay away. If I'm Eric Bieniemy, let me let me take over the Los Angeles Chargers. Let me do something like that. Let me take over the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. While not having consistent winning, they're set up pretty well to where, you know what, this is your opportunity to do a lot of great things with that organization. The Lions, that, that franchise is in flux. We don't know what we're going to do with that one. And then also with the Jets, yeah, you have the number two pick, but you know, you're going to have to work with the GM to decide, hey, are we going to keep Sam Darnold? Are we going to trade Sam Darnold? Are we going to draft the number two pick? Are we going to trade the number two pick for a bevy of picks? What exactly are we going to do? Can you work with someone like Sam Darnold? I still think Sam Darnold has some talent to turn things around. We saw what Ryan Tannehill did when he left the Adam Gaze laboratory and went to Tennessee. Now, Derrick Henry has a lot to do with that, but yet and still, it's night and day in terms of how well Ryan Tannehill has played as a quarterback when you take a look at him in Miami when Adam Gates was the head coach compared to now when you have a defensive-minded head coach in Mike Vrabel and you see what he's doing. So these are all things that I would have to kind of take a look at if I'm a black head coach. But yeah, man, there we go. There we go. And uh, Anthony Lynn deserved to be fired. I mean, just the game situations just needs a little bit more seasoning. That all. That's all. Now, if he was white, I would be confident to where he could, you know, be a coordinator or do something for a, 
a pretty good coach, reestablish himself, and then in a year or two or three, be in a position again to uh, get another job. But with him being a black man in the NFL, I don't know. I really don't know. All right, that's about it for me. I am out of here. I am done. I am going to end this program with my hero, musical hero, the legend, the great, the wonderful, the awesome, the incredible Otis Redding, Monterey, June 1967, went out there somewhere around midnight. Folks were leaving. Folks were leaving the Monterey Pop Festival. Here they go in terms of, uh, you know, no one ever heard these white kids, never heard of Otis Redding. For the most part, Otis came on stage, knew that he only had a couple of minutes because of the, I guess, the the law out there in California at the time was like everything shuts down at midnight. So they tried to squeeze him in at the last, uh, at the last uh, performer, the first night at Monterey. Folks had been there all day long listening to the Mamas and the Papas. I don't know if Jimi Hendrix had already played that uh, that uh, day. Jefferson Airplane, all the folks were out there doing their thing and folks were kind of tired. They had been there all day and they were getting ready to leave. Otis Redding came on stage. He said, you know what, fellas, we're going to do this double time because we're going to go through my entire set and we're going to do it quickly. So everything is going to be up-tempo. Shake, been loving you too long, respect, uh, and uh, try a little tenderness. And as soon as he came on stage, shake. Let me hear the whole crowd shake. A little bit louder, shake. Early in the morning, shake. Late in the evening, shake. In the midnight hour, shake. When time going bad, y'all shake. Shake with the feeling, shake. Shake with the feeling. Bum, 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 bum. It was kind of like, okay. <laughs> it was like, we're stopping now and we're going to groove and we're going to, we're going to just, 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 just lose our minds. And that's exactly what Otis Redding did that night. Crossed over soulfully. Took his career to another level, baby. Became the true superstar of soul music. That's what the fuck I'm talking about. So he ended the show. I mean, he came in with shake. Then he came in with respect. Then he came in with loving you too long. Then he came with satisfaction. And by the time he got through with satisfaction, I mean, the crowd was just like ready to lose. Their their heads were about to explode. And then he came in with this song as I'm ending the uh, podcast right now, Try a Little Tenderness. And it was just kind of like, holy, holy smokes alive. I, I know I didn't see, if, if, if this, if someone told me this was Jesus Christ, I would have believed them up there on the stage. Otis was that great. Otis was that awesome. 100 or 50,000 people at Monterey for that festival. And he blew them away. You know, funk, uh, just, just you know, all this other different types of music. And Otis came in completely different in terms of the soul. And he just he just blew it away. Smokey Robinson said no thanks. I think Lou Rawls might have been the only other black guy, along with Hendrix, who was there. Booker T and the MGs came out for their little set. And uh, Otis came in and just blew them away. So it is my pleasure. It is my honor to go ahead and play that final song. Six months later, he was dead. Six months later, he was at the bottom of the Lake Monona in Wisconsin, Jan, um, December 10th. I was podcast about that. But uh, yeah, this was the night. Knowing that, not knowing, but I mean, you know, six months later, he would be dead. But uh, yeah, man, this night, Otis was the king. 
he was the absolute king. So try a little tenderness by the legendary, the greatest of them all, my man, my hero, the great Otis Redding. Take it away, boys. Them young girls, they do get wearied Wearing that same old miniskirt dress Yeah, 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 yeah But when she gets weary You try your little tenderness Yeah, yeah, yeah Now I know she's waiting Just anticipating Things that she'll never, 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 never possess No, no But while she's there waiting Just a little bit of tenderness That's all you got to do Now it might be A little bit sentimental No, no, no But she has Her griefs and care Yeah 